Hey everybody, what's going on? It's Indigo, also known as Rona from Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Benita from Weeds, and you are listening to Neil Before Pod. Neil Before Blog presents Neil Before Pod. Welcome to another Neil Before Pod, the podcast that has no idea what timeline it's in and doesn't care. That's the important part. I'm your host, Craig, and we are here to talk about Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. By we, I mean also Chris. Hello, Chris. Hello. Although I do need to secretly check if he's actually a Chronicom agent, so let's try this. What would you say if I used the word moist? Moist. Moist. Stare at you <laughs> <laughs> So he has failed to understand the reference to the show that we're here to talk about. That is an amazing start. No, I get it. I remember because Coulson just said it in his face multiple times. Yes, yes, he did. It's <laughs> possibly a spoiler, but possibly not. But anyway. Maybe not. Oh, yeah. Have we got the spoiler on? No. Not yet. Am I supposed but... to die at the point? I'm trying to remember what broke the guy when he was saying the word moist. <laughs> I think it was just the word moist, to be honest. Just, oh my God, it's so horrible. Don't say that. <laughs> I could try making fun of John Wayne or some other actor that you might like. <laughs> yeah, what about if I say that Robert Downey Jr. has no talent? <laughs> or that Patrick Stewart is a bad actor? There we go. Okay, now you're pushing it, buddy. Yeah, that, there we go. Not a Chronicom <laughs> agent. Well, hi, Chris. Welcome to the team Hello. and the timeline. Happy to be here. Good. That's what I like to hear. So, as I said, we're here to talk about Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., which recently finished. Boo-hoo. As in proper boohoo, I'm not being sarcastic here. I'm genuinely broken that the show is gone, but we'll get to that. First of all, it's time for our award-winning segment, Neil Before Rise Against. So, Chris, why don't you start us with your first Neil Before? My Neil Before is actually a little book series that I've started reading. It's the Red Rise books, I know. Chris reads what? <laughs> not very often that I'll pick up a book and then just start running through it and not able to put it down. But um, I've been reading the Red Rising saga by Pierce Brown recently, as it was one of those things that sort of pops up on Goodreads and goes, "Because you like this, you like this," and I actually do. I'm about two books in. I think there's like five books. I think really enjoying it. Kind of Hunger Games esque in its setup. You've got a teen protagonist in a world that's wrong and segregated and separated out, and then they're rising against the system. So by saying Hunger Games-esque and describing it like that, you'll know exactly the tone the book takes. But yeah, very, very good. Enjoying it so far. Cool. So you can check that out if you like to read books, or just wait for the film-slash-TV adaptation that will inevitably come. Yeah, just wait for that to arrive at some point. It's almost primed for it, I would say. How recent is this thing? It's pretty recent, I think. I think it's like 2015, 2016, maybe. Okay, so prime real estate for adaptation. Yes. Yeah. Fair dues. Check that out. My kneel before is going to surprise everybody. I'm going to kneel before a Star Wars thing rather than rise against a Star Wars thing. What? unprecedented so there is going to be a lego star wars holiday special appearing on disney plus this november (laughs) and the official synopsis for it has been released 
It is set after the events of Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker. Ray leaves her friends to prepare for Life Day as she embarks on a new adventure with BB-8 to gain a deeper understanding of the Force, deeper knowledge of the Force. Same thing. A mysterious Jedi temple, Ray finds herself hurled into a cross-timeline adventure through beloved moments in Star Wars cinematic history, coming into contact with Luke Skywalker, Darth Vader, Yoda, Obi-Wan Kenobi, and other iconic heroes and villains from all nine Star Wars saga films. But will she make it back in time for the Life Day Feast and learn the true meaning of holiday spirit? You'll have to watch <laughs> to find out. <laughs> that sounds ridiculous and potentially fun. It's either going to be awful or fun, isn't it? It's 50-50. It's on a knife edge whether that is going to be one of the worst things ever committed to film or the best. To be fair, contrary to my previous statements about I feel like Star Wars needs to move on and let go of its past and tell new stories. I'm all for this nostalgia trip through the past, actually. But I think it'll be done in a fun way. I think if The Rise of Skywalker had been this concept, I would have been like, what in the earth is this? I mean, I had enough problems with what it was, actually, but this isn't something I want to see as a serious thing. So Ray getting to meet Luke Skywalker in a Lego format, I mean, it's just going to be funny, isn't it? Or it's going to be skewed funny, whether it'll actually be funny or not, it's another story. Yeah, you'd imagine that it's going for the comedy tone, isn't it? Normally the Lego stuff is along those lines. Yeah. Will it be canon, though? I mean, will we get <laughs> everybody back, all the actors back? Yeah. Ray Skywalker going back to oh, meet God. her relatives. God, let's not bring that up. She's just going to have to call herself Ray, and then it... <laughs> I hope she meets Luke and it's like, I took your name. And he's like, you did what? (laughs) That wasn't what I was trying to teach you. Yeah. Strange coincidence. In the future, I steal your surname. Yeah. (laughs) So that's that. It comes on Disney Plus in November. It's possibly the Christmasiest thing we'll get, other than possibly this Home Alone remake, which I don't think they've made yet. Thank God. Uh, Yeah. I think I've made my thoughts on that one known already. (laughs) Yeah, that's it. Okay. So rise against something. Rise Against, it's more of a disappointed in rather than a rise against, I would say, is that the film that was going to be directed by Noah Hawley in the Star Trek universe, rather than Star Wars, got to make sure I get that right, doesn't look like it's going ahead anymore. It looks like it's been put well and truly on the back burner. I think there's been hints at this for a while that it wasn't going to be going ahead, but it seems like it's been put on hold as they try and reassess what they're going to do in Star Trek in terms of movies. But the TV show is going from sort of a bit more strength at the moment. They're now looking at the films, and it looks like Noah Hawley's one has been put out to pasture at the moment. The thing is, with this, it just keeps changing all the time. Like, one week it's Star Trek as a priority for Paramount. The next week it (laughs) is not a priority for Paramount. We're just going to do the TV. It's like, what are you going to do? I actually would rather they kind of drop the movies for a while at least and just concentrated on the TV because it's far better. I think I was more interested because of the director rather than a lot else in it and it sounded like it was going to be sort of moving away from the core set of characters and doing something a bit different which sounded interesting. I'm a bit like you where it's like okay you could actually give it a rest for a couple of years but let's be fair at this point when they're talking about getting scripts and directors sorted they are talking about a couple of years time aren't they? Yeah and then there's a Tarantino one that might not happen, might happen. It might be a 1930s gangster film that just has Star Trek in the title somehow. We don't know. And then there's <laughs> this fourth Kelvin timeline movie, which may or may not happen as well. It used to have a director, and if it doesn't, the Noah Hawley one isn't that or might be that. We don't know. It's just a mess over there at the moment. Yeah, it just seems that they don't quite know what to do with the film side of it 
they seem to be making some good choices at the moment regards the TV side. So you've got to hope that maybe that picks up for them. Yeah. Finally got me to buy into the Kelvin timeline. I say finally, I like the first one. <laughs> and then it's just, yeah, we're not going to do this for a while. Chris Pine might not show up because we're too cheap to pay him the amount that he deserves. And Chris Hemsworth won't be there because of the same reason. Well, I don't want Chris Hemsworth, really. Not that I don't like Chris Hemsworth, I do. But I don't want a time travel adventure where Kurt gets to meet his impossibly ripped dad. <laughs> Because if you remember Hemsworth in the first movie, he is not super ripped. He is not Thor, but now he is just no. Thor all the time, pretty much. I always forget that he's in that. That's the thing. I yeah, he's only in it for like five minutes. In the yeah. Some would argue the best five minutes. I mean, my points on time travel, which we will no doubt get into later on <laughs> in this podcast, are well known. There's an entire podcast that either has been recorded, hasn't been recorded, published or unpublished, depending at the time that you're listening to this, or the timeline that you're listening to this in, Yeah. where we discuss our problems with timelines and people crossing over and visiting relatives and all sorts of things like that. And it, it always kind of peeves me a little bit. So, yeah, I'd prefer they did a different story than that. Yeah, me too. Just give us another good adventure with the Enterprise crew. Yeah, it's like, what's the good reason, apart from the fact that they're like, oh, we used to have Chris Hemsworth in these things, and this would give us an excuse to get Chris Hemsworth on one of these movies. You know, why did like, we kill Chris Hemsworth in the first movie? We had no idea. Why, oh, we why? Were so stupid. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he was just a Australian soap actor at that point, and now he's one of the <laughs> biggest people in Hollywood in both senses. Yeah. Why did we kill off one of the big movie Chrissies? Why? <laughs> we had two of them in one movie and we got rid of one of them. <laughs> we should have been accumulating Chrissies, not getting rid of them. <laughs> there was two more we could have got and we didn't get them. So yeah, Star Trek movies might not be happening for a while, good or bad. I don't know. As long as they keep making TV, I am fine, to be yes, honest. Yes, that's true. But cool. My rise against is that DC are doing massive layoffs, despite the fact that they're planning loads of projects. Those two don't seem to combine for me. But there's this whole thing about the DC streaming service has been all but confirmed as dead. As in, they've talked about how they're moving all the shows that were on the DC streaming service to HBO Max, which basically says, we're killing this off and we're concentrating on HBO Max because it has more content. Which, to be fair, I kind of suspected was going to happen because... It doesn't make sense to have this DC streaming service when you only have maybe one show a year on it, which, to be fair, they got a lot of content out fairly quickly, but it's not enough to sustain a whole pricing model, really. The thing is, it's not enough stuff. You've not got enough content. Likewise, if Marvel tried to do something similar, as much as you would have that initial splurge of content, you would then sit there and go, well, there's not enough here. There's some movies that I'd like to rewatch, and there's a couple of TV shows that I could do a run-through, and then once you've finished that, you're like, I know what. This run of everyone wanting a streaming service. Hey, what's the other one that they tried to do it with? Stargate. They tried to do an inter- streaming platform based on just Stargate, which, yes, there's a lot of episodes of SG-1 and Atlantis and Universe and you know a couple of movies and TV movies. But it's still not enough content. It's like, what what else are you going to put on here? Especially in a world that is just full of streaming services. It's like, what one am I going to pay for? The one that I can watch for three, four weeks of the year when they put out content that I will quickly binge, or am I going to pay for this other one that's constantly uploading content? Because it's trying times for all of them. Because even things like Disney+, Plus, especially at the moment when lots of productions are being put on hold and they can't finish TV shows and things yet, they're starting to resume production. There comes that little bit where people go, why am I paying for this just now? 
there's no risk for me cancelling my subscription and coming back in three months unless you pay for your year in advance or you get your discount deal. Yeah. Then there's no reason for you to stick around. You can flip to another streaming provider, use that content, and then if you want to come back, if they announce a new show, you can do that. I mean, the fact that they're laying off people at the same time as announcing new content is a bit worrying. It doesn't seem to match. It's like we're going to try and please investors in both ways because we're going to tell them that we're making new stuff that's going to make them money and also that we're laying off people, which is also going to save them money. It just seems like an investor-pleasing statement and the two contradict each other. Well, it seems that everybody that was running the streaming service side of things, they're gone and they're doubling back on a lot of comic stuff so they're getting rid of a bunch of lines but Jim Lee, the leader of this, the leader, the boss of all this, has said that they are still a comic publishing company, which seems a really stupid statement when you're talking about DC Comics. Of course you're going to still publish comics. What else are you going to do? You know, this, <laughs> let's just make films and TV shows. But I think, well, they're kind of treating comics the same way Marvel are treating the comics. This is a good low-cost test bed for ideas that we might want to use later in films. As in, if people don't respond to this in comics, we can tweak it, we can remove bits, we can change bits, and then release it as a film or a TV series later on. So comics have never really made that much money, and they're not planning on them making money. They're just using them as these kind of creative test beds, which might make the writers feel a bit rubbish, but at the same time, they're still doing the same thing that they were going to be doing anyway, I suppose. But I don't know. It seems a bit upsetting that they're letting so many people go while talking about all this stuff that they want to make and all this growth that they want to achieve. It's like, but you're getting fired. Like you say, it seems contradictory. And I am surprised about them reducing some of the comic lines because as much as you're saying that they're using them for a bit of story creation for you know test beds for the movies, you'd actually think that because of the success these films have had, that it's maybe brought some newer audiences in towards the comic lines who are wanting to read backstories or find out, oh, what's the origins of this character or what different versions of this character are there out there? But I think a lot of people end up Googling stuff rather than actually reading back issues. They'll watch a YouTube explainer saying what different origins Superman's had or what different characters he's faced rather than actually reading the books themselves. Well, I think there is a lot of chat about the fact that they adapt a particular character into a film or the Winter Soldier movie comes out or whatever, or I don't know. Um, I don't think DC really done any kind of massive... Well, they've done a few massive arcs, but it's not been clear what they are. But what you find is they'll maybe churn out a new trade paperback of that particular line at that mm. time so that when people come in, they can grab it and then see what's going on. So we're making a Doctor Strange film. Oh, look, here's this trade paperback of the origins of Doctor Strange that you can now read. Here happens to be a collection of issues that we've put yeah. together all about him. <laughs> and to be fair, it does get people in and reading them. I can imagine some of the Fox stuff is, okay, we've just seen the trailer for the new Fantastic Four movie. Let's go read the trade paperbacks of their origins. <laughs> oh, God, this isn't what the trailer that I've seen. I can't imagine. <laughs> this isn't what I was expecting. Where was this in the film? Why did you give me this? dreary crap inside a stupid warehouse for two hours <laughs> instead of this cosmic madness that they, they become known for. In order to tone it down, what you've got to do is you've got to read the Fantastic Four comics, but you've got to wear sunglasses. Yeah. That's how you bring it back to how the movie's portrayed it. <laughs> Just got yeah. to be a little bit darker. <laughs> yeah. 
So it is a shame. I never like to hear about people losing their jobs when companies are restructuring and it's a bit of an issue. Plus, this weekend, as of time of recording, they're doing an all-day event online, DC Fandom, or Fandom, but I think because they put an E at the end, everyone's calling it Fandom. But (laughs) what it is, is basically all day and they've got various panels for Shazam 2, for Wonder Woman, for upcoming stuff like The Flash and all this stuff. You know, as in the TV shows, Stargirl's got a panel. They're going to be screening the two DC animated movies that are coming out soon for free. It's all online. You can watch it just on the website, the the DC fandom website. And I haven't planned to do that. I don't know what the UK times are. But I'll probably leave it on like all day because it'll be quite interesting, just a, a full <laughs> panel. And of course, it'll have the Snyder Cut, perhaps the first trailer for the Snyder Cut. So that'll be exciting. Yeah, there'll be plenty to see it and that by the sounds of it. Yeah, so it sounds like they've just announced this a few days before it so they can bury it by the time they do this event that's celebrating all the work that they're going to be doing in the future. We shall see. So that's it. Neil Before Rise Against is over with for this edition. Some good stuff in there to hate on or love, depending on your perspective. (laughs) So there we go. Right, now to our featured topic. Now it's time for Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., its final season. After the last couple of final seasons that we kind of thought might be final seasons, it's a show that's hung on somehow for seven years. Seven years, amazing. It's outlived every other Marvel TV show, including the ones that people... Were gushing about on Netflix. Outlived them. Well, the shows that people were gushing about and then thought, why are they still making these? These are terrible. And then, oh, Daredevil season three is quite good. And then that was it. They're all dead now. Peaks and troughs. And yeah. Well, mostly troughs. A very <laughs> mostly troughs. troughs. Lots of troughs. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so should we just kick off with your spoiler-free thoughts on the final season? We'll get to the show at large later, but the final season just as a kick off as final seasons go i thought it was really really good there were some issues there were some plot issues and enemy issues throughout this that we'll get to and little bits regarding time travel and whatnot that put me off a little bit but overall as a season really really enjoyed it it wraps it up like you said shield has had a couple of season finales really is this the strongest season finale that they've done could be. It's definitely a different tone from the others, and it definitely seems more final, this one. Yeah. I love the final season. Week on week, I just found that it was interesting stuff. They were playing around with the characters and situations in really interesting ways. I thought the ending was a lovely, bittersweet one that leaves a bit of a, uh, you know, kind of... I mean, the last time they did a series finale in season five, it was very much, a, wow, they're trying to destroy me emotionally here. But in this one, it's kind of like, oh, we're not seeing these people again. Oh, what a shame. Oh, no. It's a different feeling. And I think what they were going for, we'll discuss it in detail later, but I think they were building up to something that was very, very specific. And I think they achieved what they're building up for. And I think the feeling that it leaves you with is an important part of that. So we'll get to that once we descend into spoilers and talk about the ending in a bit more detail but for now i think it's time to descend into the spoilers jump to that spoiler timeline okay so now we're in the spoiler timeline it doesn't matter because we'll leave it eventually so it doesn't matter how much we destroy it apparently (laughs) yes they're all disposable to us in this timeline (laughs) timeline. 
sometimes I feel like that about the actual world we live in. It is someone's disposable timeline. Yeah. I'm just going to test all these solutions on this timeline because who cares about it anyway? And we have to live in it. And then they get yeah, to go how back and fix theirs. <laughs> yeah, how come we live in the rubbish multiverse? How did that happen? Yeah, that's it. Well, we live in the one that the time travellers are just coming back to just test all this stuff. It's like, okay, the coronavirus didn't help in any way. It didn't make people any smarter. So we'll try, I don't know, we'll try a, a volcanic eruption now. Oh, that didn't work. And <laughs> I think, yeah. Um, yeah, let's not be all that topical in that sense. Yeah. Let's go in and create another financial crash. That would be great. What do you mean another one? Was, did we ever get out of the last one? Is this not just <laughs> the same financial crash? Just an extension? What if we replaced the president with an alien? Let's see what happens. <laughs> yeah, that would be an improvement, surely. <laughs> Don't know. So the final season was hopping through time. We started off in the 1930s and then the 50s and then the 70s. Then it was the 80s and then we never left the 80s until the final episode. So it was... Yeah. Yeah, which is not what I expected. But I like the concept. I like the idea of it's S.H.I.E.L.D. and we're going to be visiting the heyday of S.H.I.E.L.D. So you start off and it's the strategic scientific reserve that they talk about and then jump forward 20 years and S.H.I.E.L.D. is young but well-established and so on. And I like the way they did that. I like the way they visited these different eras and they started teasing little things. Obviously, the timeline changes, so all these teases mean nothing. The idea that Koenig's like, oh, robots, cool. I could do something with that. And... Well, how to get the idea in the other <laughs> timeline? They also never confirmed he was a robot in the other timeline. So we'll never know. Koenig is a mystery that we will never have solved. Other than the fact that he just has, I don't know, like nine identical brothers. Yeah, there was little hints and bits and pieces, wasn't there? But then they never confirm if it's cloning, robots, or what it is. Yeah, or whether it's just they are siblings in a shallow yeah. pool. Made even <laughs> shallower by their ancestor, who looks exactly the same. <laughs> <laughs> So did you like the concept of like jumping through time as a final season thing, sort of chasing bad guys as they try to destroy the timeline? Yeah, I actually did like it. I mean, as much as I was talking earlier about my reservations with time travel, I think the way they did it within the concept actually worked. I liked the thought that they weren't really in control of their jumps. So it wasn't the case where they could just go back further to try and fix something. It was they were getting pulled along and weren't really in control. It gave them a clock that they had to work against to try and do it the fact that they were visiting sort of shield history i thought was good i did think and i kind of worried at one point that it's oh my god they're going to go in and then it's going to be them interacting with themselves for like the latter half of the season you know it'll be going back to when they first met up and interacting on all those sort of missions and trying to do a bit of a, oh, and look what they did behind the scenes to make this particular thing work, which they didn't do, which actually I thought was a better way of doing it in the end, as much as they sort of stuck around in the 80s towards the tail end of it. I think that probably worked better than trying to revisit and doing the greatest hits of let's go and visit behind the scenes of these different episode issues. (laughs) The most they did was sort of in this finale where they go back to the episode of the last season and turns out they were the people in the suits, they were the ones who were getting fired at initially when instead of destroying the temple, they were actually trying to destroy the Zephyr kind of thing. Yeah. So, yeah, I thought that worked in a way. It planned out really well. I think they did a great job with the costuming and set design and the way that they sort of transported us back to those periods as well. It was done 
really, really well. As much as they maybe sort of redressed that one bar set slightly too many times. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, we've got this bar set. Um, okay, well, we'll use that now for everything. But apart from that, I think they did a really good way of sort of putting everything back. If they jump to the present day, they'd find it turned into a Witherspoons. <laughs> <laughs> But for exactly. some reason, there was still a secret shield base hiding behind it. <laughs> still a shield base. <laughs> the staff didn't really know. If you order that item on the app that no one ever orders, you know, like coleslaw on its own or something, it just opens <laughs> up the secret door at the end. Just <laughs> order the coleslaw. Just <laughs> yeah, order the specific combination of items, and then suddenly the secret door will open in the corner. Yeah. I think on a conceptual level, I would have quite liked to have seen the, let's jump into season one and see what's going on there. I don't think they could have gone much further than that because season one would have been the fledgling days of the show and it's like look how young and naive we all were except for Coulson who is always middle-aged and will never (laughs) change I mean now he will actually never change but there hasn't been a whole lot of physical change in Clark Gregg I think he's lost a bit more hair as the years have went on but other than that it's nothing really but I would have liked to see oh yeah remember when I was called Sky or there's Ward he's planning to kill us all we just didn't know it yet. It would have been a lot like that. And there would have probably been a scene where, oh, crap, I've been spotted. Now I have to pretend I'm myself from five years ago or seven years ago and that kind of thing. So did you change your hair? It's like, no, 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 I'm the same. Man. And then, <laughs> yeah, they would have probably done that, which I guess it can work depending. But it, yeah, a bit of Back to the Future 2, wouldn't it? We're running around during one of those episodes that we did in season one. And may it work, may it not, but we never got to see it. Yeah, I would have liked it as an excuse to get some of the old characters back and sort of giving them a little chance to be in the finale or giving them a chance to be in the final season and tie it in. I would have liked that. However, then I find sometimes when you get a show doing a time travel episode like that where they go, well, actually, we were behind the curtain the entire time. It sort of diminishes the original episode because then you're like, oh, well, it wasn't their brilliance that rude day. It wasn't their cunning that this all worked out conveniently. It's like, now I'm looking for the hand behind the curtain that was sort of manoeuvring everything into place. And it sort of taints the way that you look at it sometimes. And I know that's not the way it's intended. And a lot of the time it's like when they make the original episodes, unless they have a massive game plan, which we know they didn't have here then it's like, oh, well, you've just kind of tacked this on to what was previously a really good episode. And now I'm thinking, oh, you've kind of ruined it for me a little bit. Yeah, and it's essentially what Avengers Endgame did as well, as in we're going to go back in time to some of the previous films and run around and did the back of them. Mm-hmm. And I guess it depends. What you're talking about depends if there's a closed loop mentality to the time travel yes. logic or if it is just a change so we are just running around another version of that episode and we're making slight changes and i think the way they played with time travel throughout the early part of the season where the characters didn't know how it worked and they were just speculating and then deke had the whole well we can make like ripples that'll be fine because the water will just sort of move around us but let's not make any kind of was it ripples or dam? I can't remember. It was there was a particular analogy about we can sort of interfere with the flow ever so slightly, but we can't impede it. And then yeah. that was the logic that we're working on for the first little while. And then Mac found out his parents were killed, and then he was like, "Well, things change quite significantly now. We're now in an alternate timeline." Yeah, he didn't fade out of existence or disappear off the ship or anything like that at that point. So I did like the fact that they didn't quite know how the rules work initially. But it was very, very quick in terms of plotting and everything where you're like, okay, well, the timeline is now completely humped. Yeah. 
And they had to act quickly as well. I quite like that. They're on the back foot every time they appear somewhere. It's like, okay, when are we? And what are the Chronicoms up to? Yeah, they don't know where they've been put. They don't know why they're there. So we've got to find out what they're trying to tweak this time. Yeah, and there was little decent learned experiences after the first time jump where the Zephyr almost crashes and Coulson says, okay, we should be flying next time we jump. Live and learn. Mm -hmm. That was a good one. And it's little bits and pieces like that. And as you say, the costuming set design, because one major criticism of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. across the years is they're always sitting in really dark, sparsely decorated warehouses, labs type situations. (laughs) So, yeah, it's like corridors and even mac makes fun of it in the final episode he's after years of hallways i'd like to have a view you know <laughs> i mean that's uh, all the underground secret bases yeah first half of the season was all that look at all this set design we can do look at all these colorful costumes look how much fun we're having with this and then the second half oh we're back in the lighthouse and the lights <laughs> are dim and that's it it's all very chrome and boring looking we have these sets and we're using them (laughs) i mean to be fair that's the aesthetic of the show but i guess that's why maybe some people were turned off of it after a while because it's like this isn't very interesting to look at and i totally get that i totally get that the sets are all oh look it's another high-tech underground secret facility and there's computers everywhere and there's stuff on screens and it's very gray and dull and the lighting's not great and yeah it can end up looking a bit plain or it can look a bit repetitive when you're reusing the same stuff again and again and again and again. Even the Zephyr inside that doesn't look all that mm. great. And like the bus back when they had that in season one, that looked amazing. It looked like a proper homely type place with just places that people could sit and chill rather than the more cold aesthetic of the Zephyr, which looked more kind of military functional but less interesting. Because the bus was that. It was like almost a luxury transport that just happened to have a military function, whereas yeah. the Zephyr has been more, this is built to run operations from, not for swanning about the place. Yeah. Yeah, could have a comfy chair in a bar. Why not? <laughs> oh, you do forget that they had the upper-class lounge in the old one. Yeah. go and have a cocktail <laughs> and everything. Yeah. It's like, haven't you got a world to save? Oh, no, we're making drinks. It's fine. Yeah, but it's still a 14-hour flight. We've got, you know... <laughs> it's uh, i guess a necessary conceit but i love the first half of the season where it was all the period costumes i think whoever it was that was dressing the actors had the most fun dressing chloe bennett i think she was always wearing the more visually striking outfit they definitely enjoyed playing about with that i just thought it was very fun i don't remember if there was an actual line of oh we've got a wardrobe full of period costumes or something i can't remember where they got (laughs) where did they get their outfits from deke stole them i think or he stole money to buy them i remember there was one where he stole stuff from a washing light and things like that but i didn't know yeah but there was that one episode (laughs) it was the first one that susa time jumped and they were in buying clothes and then Sousa decided not to because he's just wearing a suit and, you know, stand yeah, out. work at any occasion kind yeah, of thing. wouldn't stand out in any timeline because he is dressed like he's from the 50s anyway. So in the 70s, it's fine. And Coulson, stick him in any period dress and he looks about the same. And yeah, I liked that they had fun with that. Did a really good job with that. And the early S.H.I.E.L.D. facility designs with all the kind of big computer banks and all that, they were cool to see. I always like seeing that retro. Look at all this advanced technology. Look at the size of this <laughs> giant computer. Isn't it amazing how small we've gotten this? 
I'm trying to remember because it was the guy that was coming out with all the gadgets and it was like the radio watch and it was yeah. huge. It was, <laughs> it was just this massive brick that you attached to your arm. Yeah. This mobile communications device and it's yeah. on like a trolley. <laughs> oh, great. Everyone's just like, wow, well, that's amazing. <laughs> but something I liked back in season one as well when Trip first came into it and he had his granddad's old SSR stuff. Highland Commando stuff, and it's like, look at all this, look at this hairdryer that's actually a laser gun and whatever else. I think there's an appeal to that kind of retro tech. No, it definitely is. And I mean, I remember they used to use that as quite a sort of thing of, oh, well, if it's technologically advanced, it's going to be spotted. Whereas if it's a little clock countdown timer plugged into a bomb, it's not going to get spotted or detected. Yeah. Because they're expecting everything to be wireless and electronic and detectable. And it's like, you go in with this sort of old style tech, it still works, but it's not going to be picked up by scanners. Yeah, and it's also a particular challenge for the people coming up with this stuff. We need to come up with something that's more advanced than they had in the 50s, but less advanced than the S.H.I.E.L.D. team will have access to now. (laughs) So it's like, obviously when they're coming up with Bond gadgets in the 60s, it's like, well, let's put a radio in this thing, because you wouldn't normally be able to put a radio in this thing, or let's hide this inside this. And it's really amazing at that time, because you couldn't imagine being able to do that, but now it's just a bit ridiculous, so... When you're working that backwards, it's a bit difficult, I think. Oh, definitely. I think the 50s set episodes were some of my favourites. Not only because we got Sousa, who turned up for the two of those and then hung around for the rest of the season. I think in his first appearance, he didn't really need to be there. He's just some guy. You know, it was great to see him and stuff, but they didn't make him a big part of the story in that first appearance, other than the fact that he was the guy that could blow Simmons' cover. Yeah, he's the person that would know Carter when he saw her. Yeah. But also, it was almost like a decoy manoeuvre, wasn't it? It's like, we'll put him in this episode and everyone will think, oh, tick, they've done the Agent Carter thing, and now they're going to move on and do something else. And instead, of course, he comes back and then continues on in the series as well. Yeah, It was a good introduction to put him in there and having him in his own environment. It shows how capable he was at that time. He spots stuff that's off guard and not quite right and puts it all together, which is quite neat. Yeah, he sees things that other agents don't. He does fall for Daisy's, I think it was CIA line that she gave him. Yeah, And then it was funny when in the following episode... Or it may be in the same episode. No, it was the following episode where Coulson said about the, I'm an artificial life or He's like, well, why didn't you just tell me? We're from the future. Mm-hmm. So why didn't you just leave with that? And <laughs> yeah, S.H.I.E.L.D. is weird. People that work for S.H.I.E.L.D. encounter weird stuff. It doesn't matter what era it's in. And we know from Agent Carter, he's seen some weird things, such as in the second season, someone with powers. So it's understandable that he'd be along for the ride and he would understand at least that things exist that he wouldn't be able to understand. I don't know. I think at that point they were still on the small ripples in the timeline kind of thing rather than big waves. Let's, you know, try and make sure that everything stays on track. Whereas if you turn up and go, time travel exists, then people go, oh, let's investigate that then. And it branches off again, doesn't it? Some of the morality-driven stuff I found really interesting where they had the whole, okay, we have to save... Gideon Malik's grandfather because he's important and we need Hydra to grow up within S.H.I.E.L.D. because that's what happened before. We just need this to happen. And then you've got someone like Daisy being like, well, why? Why can't we just make it better? And then there's no guarantee that anything will be better line that you can play around with. And the moral debates we're having over that, is this guy worth saving? And then you find out he's not actually that bad after all anyway at that point. So when Daisy orders Deke to kill him, he's like, I can't do that. He's not that bad he doesn't seem that bad right now even though he will get worse and you had all that and then when it came to Sousa it's like well it's easier to let a bad man live than a good guy die 
that distinction was really interesting for them to wrestle with. No, definitely. It was an interesting distinction to sort of split it apart and go, well, we can tweak the timeline in this case because, you know, we can just make it look like he died and we'll take him with us so he's not going to contaminate anything else. It's not going to go wrong. It was an interesting way of doing it. Also, the fact that they let him live is at the point where they still think potentially that they're impacting their own timeline rather than we're in a completely new branch. What we do here isn't breaking what we had. It's just taking it further away from us if we're stuck here kind of thing. Yeah. Because I don't know if they had known going into it, it's like this timeline isn't your timeline. You will never get your timeline back. You've already contaminated that kind of thing. Would they have been as subtle at first, if you know what I mean? Or would they just go in and go, right, we're getting rid of Hydra right now? Yeah, them puzzling it out as they went was part of it. So it did have to transpire that things played out as they did because they were just puzzling it out. They didn't know what impact they were having, if any, and what the end result would be. So they started off by, let's preserve things the way they were because we want to have a timeline that we recognise to go back to. But I think them asking those big questions about, well, what if we could stop Hydra from rising within S.H.I.E.L.D.? How would that change things? And... Of course, the whole ripple effect means you have no idea if it will change things for the better. It might not. That's the thing you wrestle with. So if Hydra doesn't infect S.H.I.E.L.D., then what happens instead? Yeah, is there something worse that takes its place? Yeah, but there's also the fact that it seems like they were ignoring the possibility of whatever they did not accomplishing much anyway. You take out Freddie Malik, fair enough, but the impression I got, certainly from previous things, is that Hydra were so deeply rooted within S.H.I.E.L.D. that taking out any one person would make zero difference. Well, yeah, I mean, that's the whole mantra, isn't it? Cut off one head kind yeah. of thing. With that, it's like you're going in at the roots, you're kind of taking it out a little bit earlier, but there's still multiple people in there who would maybe fulfill that role, maybe not in the same way, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, you would still have people like Zola and stuff kicking about, mm. so they would be very ingrained. And you've got other people that would just high up within Hydra. Like you don't infect an organisation the size of S.H.I.E.L.D. with just one person. And it kind of sums it up, the fact that, yeah, Susa's going to get killed. He will be murdered because he's about to out them. But imagine if he did, it wouldn't go very far before it was stopped anyway. Even if he did succeed in making the right people aware, he would probably just tell someone that is Hydra and then that would be it. Yeah, exactly. He'd then be <laughs> killed again, just, you know, further up the street when he calls someone. Or, yeah. Like, yeah. It's like, no worries, Daniel, I'll look into this for you. So like, have him killed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely at that point. And that episode in particular, I kind of liked the excuse for the narration as yeah. well. While we're on that episode, the black and white, the private investigator style to the thing. I liked it. I liked yeah. it a lot. It's our final season. We want to do a noir detective story. We don't really have an excuse for it, but... Colson's memory's damaged and he hears his own voice in his head and he only remembers in black and white for a little while until he's fixed. <laughs> yeah, he's seeing in black and white and he's hearing his own internal monologue. Yeah. It's like, great, okay, I'll go with that as an excuse. At first I thought, oh, it's just like they're doing a quick little thing at the beginning of the episode to kind of set the scene. And then it was like, oh no, this is going to run throughout. We didn't need the excuse, to be fair. If the episode had just ended, I'd have been like, okay, whatever. It's, your final <laughs> it's like, <season>. fair enough. <laughs> your final season you wanted to get this out your system you don't know if you'll ever get the chance to do this again so have at it why not but it also works in the 1950s as well that's the kind of story you want to see in the 50s just all exaggerated all in shadow all smoky rooms yeah over the top narration they managed to get through a lot of these past eras without showing anybody smoking which was quite impressive <laughs> but i think it might be a mantra like marvel that we can't 
never show anybody smoking a cigarette. So we have these very kind of toned down versions of the past where no one seems to smoke <laughs> that they encounter. Because Koenig would smoke, no problem. You would not expect him to be someone that doesn't. Yeah, they sort of did the smoke-filled set without anyone actually smoking. <laughs> yeah, somehow. Just, where's all this coming from? Yeah. Because you would expect a bar like Koenig's to have this kind of layer of smoke, you know, just below the roof. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Sousa getting brought along was a great choice, I think. I think he brought a nice dose of old-fashioned honourable charm to the team. It was that sort of old-school thinking with sort of new-school tech, which is probably the wrong way of wording it, but anyway, it was that sort of thing of the old-school thinking kicking in from time to time and that old-worldly charm, gentlemanliness. Yeah. And the sort of, well, why don't we just ask them if they'll go away kind of thing rather than (laughs) let's kill them all. It's like, no, why don't we ask them? Why don't we start a diplomatic chat? Because he's not seen the other side. He's not seen what it's like, so... yeah. His only experience of the future are the people that are standing in front of him. So he's like, well, they seem pretty honourable, so why don't we speak to everyone else? Yeah. Yeah. And he recognises the fact that he is a supporting character and he's kind of proud of it because he's the guy that helps enable the people that can mm. do all the heroic stuff. And he's fine with that. That's his place in the world and he's accepted that and he accepted that long ago when he was working with Peggy back in the day. That's the role he fulfilled and that was fine for him. He doesn't have any ideas above that. He knows that he serves an important function and he doesn't want to be the centre of attention and that's fine by him. Almost his catchphrase was, what can I do to help? Yeah. What do you need? What do you need me to do? And that was great, I think. It's just something you don't often see where a character just, okay, I'm firmly in this place and I'm fine with it. It's all good. We'll get on to Sousa and his kind of relationships that he forged with the team a bit later on. A thing that... I felt was consistently bad throughout the season was the villains. I thought the Chronicoms never managed to be a threat at any point. The situations that they caused were threats, but them themselves, not really. It's because it took them so long to have a central figure. Sybil didn't show up until later on, and then she disappeared for quite a while because she was blown up <laughs> and pretty much as soon as she was introduced in any meaningful way, and then she doesn't really appear again until the end. And She's just not that good. And Nathaniel Mallet, I liked him in terms of how over-the-top and charismatic he was, even though he had a stupid Matrix coat that just didn't really work for me. But But he was all right in terms of when he was on screen, he was all right. But again, his anarchic approach, as in, I just want to cause trouble and don't really want to think about the trouble I'm causing. It's like, well, you shouldn't really be getting to see all the future then because you don't have designs high enough to warrant having access to that information. You really wanted the Chronicons to be pulling his strings more and it seems like he was pulling them along more and you're like well that shouldn't be the way it is because she's controlling what he gets to see what predictions he gets what facts about the future he gets so why would he be leading the pace in this particular way i thought he was particularly dark the episode where he's got daisy captured and the torture and stuff that he puts her through awful And you get the sense that in the intervening time, when they do the time jump, that he's been going about just causing mayhem. But like you say, he doesn't have a purpose. Apart from when the final episode, it's like, oh, well, I was going to sit on a throne over the ashes of everything that left. And it's like, was that ever going to happen? How do you get from, oh, well, from orbit, we've nuked all the shield bases and we've just caused havoc around the world, but we're going to declare you emperor. How was that or when was that going to happen? 
Yeah. It didn't seem like he had a clear path going that particular way. And it didn't even seem until he said it that that was 100% of what he wanted. Because he had already fractured from Hydra at that point. He had declared that he wasn't Hydra, kind of. Yeah, he was never interested. Yeah, he wasn't yeah. interested in the family business sort of thing. So he's went down his own path, creating his sort of inhuman army or inhuman power stolen army to go off and, like you say, cause anarchy, but not particularly for a reason. Just like, oh, well, I'm just going to sort of go in and mess with stuff and that's it. And take S.H.I.E.L.D. out of the way because S.H.I.E.L.D. would be able to stop me in the future from causing more anarchy. It just didn't seem as well thought out. The Chronicons and the fact that they are able to predict the future should have made them way more of a threat. But the fact that they tried to be so surgical about what they did seemed to depower them in a way. Yeah, It's like, we need them to have this Achilles heel where instead of just nuking the planet from orbit, they've decided that S.H.I.E.L.D. is the thing that got in their way. Not human society, not anything else, just S.H.I.E.L.D. If we take S.H.I.E.L.D. out, then our planet survives and then that's it. But the fact that it was like, oh, well, we're going to go and we're going to take out this one guy in the 1930s (laughs) and then that's it. S.H.I.E.L.D. doesn't happen. It all topples down at that point. The threat isn't real. It's all fine. And then that's it. It's over. Why would they be that surgical? Why that specific? It seems that you could have taken him out at any point and stopped that branch of the timeline. So why make it so surgical? It just seemed odd. Yeah. I mean, there was all different problems. They had access to see the time stream to the point where they could predict exact words that were going to be said by different (laughs) characters until they couldn't. Because you had that whole... Well, they can see the future, so let's be unpredictable. Well, surely they can see that future too, if they can see all of them. Yeah, they can predict that you're going to go unpredictable. <laughs> yeah, it's all about probabilities. So all the probability assessment says that Daisy will go after her blood sister and try and redeem her, which takes her off the board. We didn't predict that she would try and save Simmons instead. But surely that's a more reasonable prediction. As in, hmm. she doesn't know her blood sister, she knows... Simmons. So therefore, this is the most likely outcome. But it's all these kind of things that, oh yeah, we've been unpredictable. That's the explanation for why they managed to get on board. And then in the second to last episode, well, we've predicted that if she rescues Simmons, we have a higher likelihood of finding the information that we need out of her. So we'll just let her walk around the ship (laughs) (laughs) without being accosted by any of the Chronicom soldiers, which seems stupid because Well, it makes Daisy immediately suspicious because they walk past her and don't react. The order could have been something more along the lines of attack her, but don't shoot to kill. Yeah, aim to miss. Shoot like stormtroopers for the next 20 minutes. I mean, that would be suspicious in itself, but it's less suspicious than, oh, look, they're walking past me, even though I'm right here and I'm clearly an intruder. That makes no sense. And she's immediately suspicious of that. And then she manages to whisper some poison in Cora's ears that turns her against... Malik and the cause, which was what they didn't want to happen. So at that point, it just seems, what are you planning here? Why are you letting this happen? It doesn't make any sense. Also, what were you planning to do once Daisy had rescued Simmons? It didn't seem like you were doing anything to get any of them back. Yeah, you didn't have people queuing in the corridors waiting to kill them and capture them at the point where you find out where Fitz is. Yeah, it's very much, let's let Daisy get to the cell. Then we'll lock her in with Simmons and then we'll let them talk. Also, the fact that they couldn't predict what Malik was going to do. 
where even in the conversation there's signposts of I am going to disobey you and I am going to interfere. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I might be in this room with you, but I'm sending someone else in to disrupt your plans. Yeah. It seems written all over him at that point. So why would they not be paying any attention to what he's doing? as much as they're paying attention to S.H.I.E.L.D. Yeah, they were pretty rubbish throughout the season, to be honest. I don't think they ever felt like a threat. I think the only real threat was the team not knowing what was happening when they arrived in a different era. And then there was the ones where, okay, the Chronicoms, they don't age. There's been 20 years since we last jumped, so they've had 20 years to come up with something. And then that's when you have things like, oh, no, Hydra are launching Insight like decades too early. So that's something we need to deal with right now. So that's a bit of behind-the-scenes engineering, and that makes for a threatening situation, but not so much a threatening villain. Yeah, true. It puts the stakes in that particular way. But again, you just look and you go, well, you've got all this ability, you've got all this power, and it's your confidence in the sort of time stream, the probability that leads to their downfall. But yeah, I don't know. I'm with you. I was disappointed in the villain for this season, or the villains for this season. But you try and think of what they could do that would have been a more impressive threat for this sort of time-jumping journey. It was going to be Hydra. It was going to be, you know, you need something like a robot which is ageless to be a proper threat that way. I mean, I guess you just have Sybil earlier on and make her more prominent and then develop her that way and make her have an actual relationship with the team in, in some way, whether that be through Coulson or whatever. Maybe his Chronicom construction lets him talk to Sybil wirelessly all the time. She can influence him in a little bit or see some of what he sees. I mean, there was a whole thing where he was sort of shut down in the corridor in one of the 1950s episodes. Yeah. I can't remember which the one. one. Yeah. He was lying in the corridor and I'm like, oh, he's going to get taken and reprogrammed at this point. Are they going to do something? Or even when he went down to the ship and he put his hands in the the sort of machine and i'm like oh well this is when they overwrite him <laughs> yeah. they do such to him now that he's plumbed into the system they're going to overwhelm him and no it was like oh yeah we let him get all the way down here and we let him blow up the ship <laughs> yeah. it's like we predicted that and it's like well okay well i like the whole you can ask us questions all you want because there's no point in us not answering them we're going to win anyway i like that so yeah. that was a good way of oh that's interesting now it's time to get some information. It was a good Colson moment, even though it's not really Colson, which we'll get to. <laughs> yeah. So bad villains, as in not bad in a good way, just yeah. bad, bad villains. <laughs> I mean, the Chronicoms have never seemed especially great. I think early on, when they were first introduced, I felt like there was just going to be a bit of a nuisance that cropped up now and again. But then they achieved more and more prominence as time went on. Until the point where we're in the final season and there are big bad for the final season. What's all this about? They didn't seem like they were earmarked for big things, but there you go. Yeah, it's a weird one. But hey, at least it wasn't about them. At least they did the right thing by the characters, which naturally brings us on to the characters. So we have a brand new Coulson straight off the assembly <laughs> line. We had a season of... Maybe he's a villain, maybe he's not, maybe he is, maybe we don't know. Maybe he's a clone of Coulson from a different timeline or something we don't know. Which, yeah, I don't feel like they ever adequately explained what Sarge was. It was just kind of glossed over. But it doesn't matter. He's forgotten about more or less as the season begins. So we have Coulson 2.0, half Chronicom, half LMD. He's a shell that looks like Coulson that's programmed with all his memories and... 
with algorithms that make them behave exactly like Colson, which means it's easier for us to think of him as Colson, but he's not really Colson. And I've learned my lesson from the Legends of Tomorrow podcast where you weren't prepared to discuss free will in <laughs> detail. So we're prepared for an existential conversation about the meaning of life in Colson. So I kept having frequent thoughts about this and the show did keep bringing it up in interesting ways. And where Colson, I'm just going to call him Colson because that's what he is for the purposes of this. He's a life model decoy that has Chronicom technology. It's meant to extrapolate what Colson would be like in this situation but it's not really him so the original colton died there's no disputing that that guy died in season five or shortly after season five he died so this one is a copy of him and a copy of him at the point of leaving the framework really so there's a lot he's missing so simmons has ended up extrapolating his memories based on what colson would have seen and experienced but it's not really him but it acts like him and it confuses everybody. I think they resolve it early on just by saying, as far as we are concerned, we're just going to assume he is Colson because it gives you a headache. Too much thinking about it gives you a headache. So there's no point in us trying to wonder why he's different. I mean, they do do it early on where Mac is worried about how reckless he is, as in he knows he's indestructible, so behaves like a superhero, but the problem is his reckless behaviour puts other people in danger. I expected more of that, but they didn't do an awful lot with it after that point. I guess after that point, you maybe realised, mm, I can't be doing that around people who are more fragile than I am. I don't know. They never addressed it after that point, though. Yeah, they never really pushed with that. Like you say, there's a few times of, send me in and I'll blow up, it's fine. Yeah. They did that with the Chronicom ship episode that I was talking about there. Where it was like, send me in because you could just like blow me up and boot me up from a backup, means nothing kind of thing. You don't want that to be the whole thing. As much as Coulson's whole deal is that he, he dies and comes back multiple times, you don't <laughs> want him getting restored from a backup every week. Yeah. You know what I mean? It doesn't seem like the right way to do He's it. He's almost like Captain Scarlet, isn't he? Yeah, don't worry, we, you know, we've got backups, we'll just rebuild them, it's fine. He's indestructible. I thought at one point they were going to tweak that in a point where, okay, he does his indestructible, I can go and I can defeat anyone kind of routine. And then at some point there was going to be a problem with the backups on Zephyr or they've not got the computer or they've not got the data anymore to rebuild them. And then he would get his vulnerability back kind of thing and have to change his mindset. And I thought they would maybe play with that, but they didn't. Yeah. Or I thought he was maybe going to ask for that. I mean, in the end, he gets his remote so that he can switch himself off. He can decide if he boots up or not. Mm -hmm. He gets to decide when he finally switches off. So he gets that decision. But I thought part of his thing would be destroy the backups, destroy the tapes. I don't want to come back after this. When I decide I'm gone, I'm gone kind of thing. I think they struggle to push that kind of thing because they're struggling for time to try and fit stuff in, which is another problem in another part of this episode that I'm sure we'll get to is that they struggle for time so they can't pause on anything because they've got to finish up the season storyline but then they've also got to try and wrap up the show yeah. and do a okay where's everyone now and how's everyone getting on kind of thing so that they struggle to push some of these ideas and it's like things get picked up and then kind of dropped and they do that a bit with Coulson and I think part of my thing you know you're saying okay he acts like him which is true but he acts like He's got the proper memories of the Coulson version that went into the framework. Yeah. But everything after that point is all based on sort of after-action reports. Like when he's getting his memories, the initial sort of download of additional memories when he first boots up 
and he's going through all the emotions of realizing what's happened over the last couple of seasons. All he's getting at that point are after-action reports or video cam footage that's been downloaded or anything that's in the report files. He's not getting the really emotional hit. Mm -hmm. I suppose he's processing it as Coulson would, but it doesn't seem the same. So he is different at that point. He has got his own perception, albeit from the algorithm based on Coulson, but he's got his own version at that point. Yeah, he's a new person who Mm. thinks and acts and behaves like Colton, but he's not Colton. And the fact is he has an indestructible body, but this is how Colton might act if he had an indestructible body, which he didn't have before, obviously. And then they do bring up the whole fact about, are his feelings real or are they just algorithms designed to replicate what feelings Colton might have in that situation? And then you open that, entire debate up to the fact is, well, what are our emotions? They're biological algorithms that our bodies implement when we are exposed to stimulus. So we're exposed to loss. We're programmed, in effect, to react in a different way. It's Whenever Star Trek did this, say data or whatever, they would always make the argument of humanity are machines just of a biological type rather than a mechanical type. And that's true. And it's about this whole... Is the circumstances of your birth or creation important to whether you're a real person or not? And ultimately, the question is, does this version of Coulson have a soul? Or, in fact, does a soul even exist in the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. universe? We've never really explored that. There are no ghosts, but there is magic and all that kind of stuff. You know, you've got Ghost Rider, you've got demons, you've got all this kind of stuff. But the fact is, we never saw Coulson's ghost come back, which maybe one more (laughs) season we would have. (laughs) (laughs) and obviously with it being tangential to the marvel cinematic universe we do have like astral forms which implies that ghosts can exist as in it's an astral form that's separated from a body that's dead and can't go back to because the body's dead could exist i mean we haven't had it yet but it's possible so there's this whole big existential debate that i can't answer and it's one of those keeps my mind spinning as I think about it, because is this Colson real? I mean, yes, he's real. He's physical in the sense of he imprints on others as well. People react to him in certain ways. It seems that the team decide that he's real pretty early on because it's easier that way and he acts enough like the original that there's no issues with them thinking that way. And the fact that this Colson also gets, well, his programming makes him upset about the fact that his feelings might not be real, which just opens up this whole other can of worms in terms of my thinking. It's, okay, his algorithms are making him upset about the fact that what he's upset about might not be real. And that's crazy. <laughs> what is going on in there? That is that's insane. It would drive you mad, and he has an eternity to think about it as well. But then, ultimately, because he is reacting in that way, those feelings are real, in inverted commas, as well, because he is reacting in a certain way. And as far as his self-awareness is concerned, he is upset and he is dealing with these problems. So who's to say what's real and what isn't in that sense? No, definitely. And I think a lot of that is gone through in the relationship between him and May. Now, as much as a lot of the initial coldness is due to the sort of strange empathy powers that May ends up with in this season. Yeah. The whole point at the end is that she's going, I didn't do this with you. 
you know, I didn't experience that with you. You're a new person. I know some people online are a bit huffy at the fact that May and Coulson weren't together at the end of this, is that they've both kind of gone separate ways. But I think that's perfectly explainable, is that she spent her final moments with the real, the original Coulson. Yeah. She's went through those emotions. Not only that, you then have Sarge pop up of going, is it him? No, it's definitely not him. But still having that emotional weight in the back of your head for it. Plus, you then get this LMD version. She's been through the ringer with that. Yeah. And I think she realizes it's time to move on. And I think he realizes as well that he couldn't fill that gap. Yeah, he's looking at these people that were, well, still are his family as far as he's concerned, but the relationships have changed. So his relationship with Daisy hasn't really changed that much. He still regards her as a daughter figure and she still regards him as a father figure. It's that point where he's talking to Sybil and then what about Daisy? And it's like, she did this. And he's like, that's my girl. The father-daughter connection is still there. And then she's the one he opens up to about the fact that he doesn't know if his feelings are real or not. In the time loop episode where he says, this time loop that you're experiencing on a micro level is my life. I'm going to have to go through life repeatedly watching people I love and care about die as I stay the same. And that's not something he wants to think about. Obviously, the team are all young at this point, but he will watch them grow older and he will never change. And I suppose that's part of why the team has to end as well, because there will be a point where he distances himself to a massive degree or maybe will still be there for them on their deathbeds and things like that. We just don't know because we'll never see these characters again but the existential questions the show raises and i like that it doesn't come to a definitive answer i like that no one turns around and says well colton there's things we can't explain so that must mean you have a soul as far as they're concerned he's still a machine Mm. by the end and he embraces that fact as well it's when he suddenly decides hang on you're a machine well may says to him you're a machine can you read code and he's like no and then he starts looking at it he's like oh no i can (laughs) and then he comes up with all this stuff just on the fly because he's starts to unlock his potential. It's just because he was limiting himself with human thought before that. Yeah, he wasn't sort of digging into that background, that information bank that he could. Yeah, and then he says to me, I like what you've become and I like what I've become as well. So he embraces the fact that he's something new and different. No, definitely. And I mean, you touched on the time loop episode there. And in that, it was his feeling of powerlessness. The fact that he wakes up in every loop or he doesn't wake up in every loop. I think that's the point, actually, is more the fact that in every loop he started shut down. So there was no way that he could dig in and help until someone came in and switched him on. Yeah. He says to Daisy, you don't switch me on every time, for God's sake. (laughs) Yeah, you forget, and then you never come back to me until you remember again, or you've tried everything else, and then you come to me. It's quite a funny bit, and don't get me wrong, the whole reason is you need him there as a mechanism for at least someone carries some of the memory over. Otherwise, you get stuck in that problem of, well, how do you get out of the loop if you forget every time you die in a reboot yeah then you just never get back to that point again so i I get why it was there but it also added this extra depth of i feel helpless because i'm basically stuck until someone pushes my own button yeah i can't start every loop and run off and start doing things i'm stuck yeah so it's that he's not in charge of his own agency at that point he is powerless in that respect he can turn himself off but at the moment he can't turn himself on. I think it was the episode before that loop where he asks for the remote so he can switch himself off yeah. And when he's in the pod instead of someone else doing it. Yeah, it's where it seems the whole uh, cybernetic oblivion thing is kind of terrifying to him, or the approximation of terrifying. It's an interesting one. I really like puzzling over these deeper thoughts of 
what makes a person and what doesn't make a person and what's real life and what isn't. And I think the only conclusion we can come to is the fact that, yes, this definitely isn't the original Colson. It is a copy of him, but they never shy away from that. They never try and pretend that he is the original. And it's, I guess they're just glad to have him around because they like him. Colson is an innately likable guy. So he's good to have around. But then after that debate and after all that stuff, they then build Robot Davis afterwards as well. Yeah, it's a bit of a throwaway joke. It's a throwaway gag, but at the same time you go, okay, so there's this whole debate over did Coulson want to come back? And they then go and build Robot Davis. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's a throwaway gag, very, very funny. But then when you throw it in with that debate... Did the original not have a family as well? Well, the bit that I was trying to figure out is, did he ever go into the framework? Was he ever scanned for the framework? Because I thought he was one of the ones that wasn't scanned. Was he one of the survivors when the base got invaded and they were doing the body snatching? Wasn't he one of the ones that didn't get body snatched? So where did they get the print of his brain from? Maybe they just took a scan anyway and didn't use it. It's like, oh, on the database, they've got one. Oh, that's fine. We'll use that. Comprehensive brain scans or shield procedure. <laughs> yeah, from now on, we will scan everyone's brain in case we want to rebuild them as a robot. It's in the contract. Yeah, we'd Davis have wanted that, but I'm sure he had like a wife and kids or something outside of his job. That was a family was thing. Yeah, yeah. I was so gutted when he died, so I was glad to see that he was back, albeit in robot form. I like the Piper Davis dynamic as well. That was quite fun. Like the old married couple. In quite the same with Coulson, I was like, they had to bring him back for the final season. I think maybe he had asked, <laughs> okay, yeah, just don't let me go. And then when they go, okay, well, next season's the last one. You go, okay, yeah. well, I might as well complete the set. Why would you not have him for the final season? Got to come up with a reason to have him in there. Yeah. So for Colson 2.0, I don't really have an answer over whether he has a soul or anything like that. But I think the fact that he believes that he is a worthwhile life form. Everyone around him believes that he's a worthwhile life form. That's enough, I think. I think he's earned his right to exist. And I like that he accepts the fact that he's not the original as well. He does make peace with that, whether that be algorithmic peace or not. But we don't know what triggers our emotions, really. So what is valid in that sense? It's a big question. And it can never be answered. And that's the beauty of it. And I like that they don't try to answer it. Because you can't. You just give the audience something to think about. And as the show ends, there's a version of Colson running around that may or may not be a real boy. That's interesting. So we talked a bit about Daisy and we talked a bit about the time loop. I think the time loop's a good example for what Daisy's arc actually ends up being by the end. Because when she finds out from Enoch in that episode that the team will end after this mission. So it's very cryptic. It's very fatalist as in the implication is there's gonna be a lot of deaths coming up when there isn't Hmm. but in the terms of the team will end and for daisy that's been her family for seven years she's never been separated from well she's been separated from some of the people and people have come and gone people have died people have moved on and things but fundamentally there's still a core group of people that she couldn't hang around with and she can take comfort from the fact that they are in her life and then she has to accept the fact that that's not going to be the case forever and almost that time loop is what she was living in before, as in, I'm always going to be with these people. Nothing's ever going to change. We're just going to keep getting ourselves in increasingly crazy situations and we'll come out the other end. But it's all worth it because we'll always be together. And then it comes to the point where, oh, no, we won't. This time loop will end. And we'll have to continue along our own paths without being around each other. And she has a lot of trouble with that, as in, I like the whole conversation that she has with Mac about, well, so it's going to be like we used to work together, as in, I'm in town, do you want to meet up? That kind of detached... 
yeah, we're only going to see each other once every couple of years. Is that enough? And considering all they've been through, is that realistic? Is that something that they should let happen? And I mean, life has changed. Relationships change. They grow. They fade. You move on. You do different things. You speak to different people. You interact with different people. You're social circle is ever changing whether you realize it or not and then sometimes you look back on an experience maybe i don't know like facebook for example on this day six years ago <laughs> i remember that person <laughs> i'm not spoken to them in five years you know <laughs> and you do sometimes think that and it's oh yeah i used to not mind that person i used to quite like that person or i remember when i worked with that person we had some good times and a lot of the time you don't realize what you've lost until long after you've lost it but this is them getting pre-warned you're going to lose this, this connection that you thought would never disappear. You're going to lose it. And I think Daisy has the biggest trouble internalising that than anybody. Because Mike is all about it. He's like, yeah, fine, whatever. It happens. I've seen it happen before. I've dealt with it happening before. It's something I'm prepared to deal with. And she isn't. And that's interesting to me. It's one of those weird things. It's like if you're in a team or you're in a group for that long, and then it's like, well, this is going to end. The people that you see every day, you're not going to see them every day. Occasionally, one person will drop out, but then another person takes their place. Whereas this is like, oh, there's going to be a new dynamic kind of thing. You're going to be away. As much as that doesn't quite happen fully to the extent that the prediction is kind of worded, she's still off with Sousa, she's still on a version of the Zephyr, she's still doing the same sort of routine, but she's not got the same people around her all the time. She's not got that same family that she's grown used to, the people that she's been sharing her secrets with and talking to. So she's found her family, but then she's forming a new one, really. You can imagine that she's essentially being more of the Coulson character on Zephyr Free now, building a new family around that than she would have done if she had stayed. Well, they directly reference that when they're the last two left, mm. Daisy and Coulson, on the Zoom call that they're <laughs> having, the hollow Zoom call. They talk about the fact that he believed in her all those years ago, and she's extending that to Cora at that point. So she's come full circle in that respect. She has become Coulson. She's learned all the lessons she needs to learn, and she's employing that with Cora now. And even the fact is, okay, yeah, I'm on Zephyr 3, I'm in outer space, I'm with Susa, I'm with Cora, and presumably there must be other people on the ship, <laughs> you would think. <laughs> you would hope Let's go with yes. these three people. Yeah. yeah. So she'll have a crew. So it's the natural way of things, isn't it? You'll have chapters of your life come to an end through no planning of your own, and then you will naturally just form those dynamics with people that you meet when you move on to that new chapter. Because you have to, otherwise you'll just be isolated this whole time. And it could be that, oh yeah, we've got Daisy on the ship and no one ever speaks to her because she's so stuck in the past. All she does is talk about bloody Simmons and Fitz and how we're not Simmons and Fitz. And it's a bit of a drain, to be honest. Let's not go near her unless we absolutely have to. But I think the initial difficulty she has, because she never had a family, she was used to going out on her own, then she had that family. And through various configurations that changed over the years, I, mean, I think Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. as a show often threatened to do this, we're going to branch out and we're going to make the organisation massive and everybody's going to be doing their little bits and pieces in different parts. And it would become that for a little while, but it would always come back to this core group who would always be together. It would be the core group that escapes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay, S.H.I.E.L.D. is torn apart for the fifth time you know, since the first season, but it's still us. We're still this small group and we're going to do everything. So it's easy to believe that that will always endure, but... The fact that it doesn't. I believe the fact that Daisy Cuff made your trouble with that. Whereas everybody else, not so much because they've encountered it before. 
No, definitely. And I think it was the right progression to give her our own team out on our own sort of striving kind of thing. Because I think it would have been very easy for them in a finale to do. And then they all work in a team together at S.H.I.E.L.D. and continue as was. The easy pop-out at the end there would have been, and they're still working together. The fact that people move on and people go to their own lives and strive and do something different, I think, is a good way of putting it. Yeah, and it was a fine arc for her and it was resolved quite nicely, I thought, in terms of, again, this whole bittersweet thing that I'll keep coming back to. The ending is very bittersweet Mm. and it's designed that way, as in, it's quite interesting when they have that Zoom call at the end They've run out of things to talk about. <laughs> they all have different things to do. I mean, we'll get onto that a bit later on, but it is the fact that, no, we're all busy. We're all too busy. And you always say that when you leave a job or way back when you leave school, we'll like, oh, stay in touch. And then you don't. It just doesn't happen. It may happen for a little while, but eventually you all just get so tied up in your own stuff that it does become that you catch up every now and again, if you catch up at all. So... Well, it was very real in that sense. It was a five-minute, ten-minute thing. Everyone's got something else that they've got to get back to. Some folk are standing precariously on the edge of helicarriers. Other people are about to go into ops. <laughs> They're literally squeezing in five minutes to go, hello, it's been a year. So we'll definitely go on to that. But the other characters have stuff to do as well. Mac, for the season, his arc was, obviously, he was being the director, as he has been before, and he's great at that. And I really liked the whole loss thing they did with him. In terms of he had to deal with losing his parents, but in a different timeline. They were his parents, but not really his parents. And he had to deal with that. And he sunk into a pit of depression for quite a while on that, like months upon months, which felt real. But then eventually he had to suck it up and realise that he has responsibilities to other people and he doesn't want other people to lose their parents. So he has to get involved again. And I liked the way they played with that. Yeah, definitely. It was one of those things, it was like when the Zephyr jumps away at the tail end of that episode, he's just disappeared off to process what's happened kind of thing. And then suddenly he's stuck there with deep... Everyone's worst nightmares. (laughs) Not only is he dealing (laughs) with the loss of his parents, but also the team have just jumped away and he can't even process that in the moment going, well, when are they going to be back? You don't know. It could be 20, 30, 40 years. But at that point, he doesn't know oh, it's going to be a year, nine months, whatever the time period is that they then jump back. He just doesn't know at that point. And the fact he sort of shrinks into himself at that point, he ignores Deke. You get the sort of flashbacks of Deke going back multiple times, going sort of, happy new year, happy birthday. He's leaving him stuff on the door. You know, I'm having a barbecue, I'm yeah. doing this, talking through the door and just throwing stuff in there. And you see the fact that he's not really out the house. He's just sort of lingering there. He goes out for shopping and that's about it. <laughs> and somehow manages to sit for eight to ten months drinking beer and still be super ripped. <laughs> Don't we all, though? <laughs> yeah, well, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's the secret. I need to drink more beer. <laughs> and the fact that he finally sort of breaks out of it when he realises that there's other people at stake, there's other families at stake. That's the thing that sort of pulls him back into the fold. Not only that, also forms a bit of a thing of realising that Deke has managed to, as much as it's uh, not exactly the most polished outfit in the world, that he's managed to (laughs) strike up something to try and help. Yeah, I like the fact that Deke is very much selfish, but he does have a good streak in him. He wants to benefit himself. He always wants to benefit himself, but he does like to help others. And he's kind of torn between that, but he usually manages to find a way to combine the two in a very unorthodox way. (laughs) So it's this whole, I want to be loved by thousands of people, so I'm going to plagiarise some songs that were popular at this era, and I'm going to 
get the lyrics wrong because he doesn't remember the lyrics, which I thought was great. So the Don't You Forget About Me, I think, was the one that mm. he was singing, but he got the lyrics completely wrong. But he just kind of roughly filled it in based on what he could remember and then what else he could extrapolate from that. So I thought that was great. So it's like, yeah, I get to be adored by people, but I also get to protect people. So best of both worlds there. And it's the perfect cover for a S.H.I.E.L.D. team. We can go wherever we want because touring is not unusual. And we can carry large, weird-looking equipment because we're a band. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. It does make <laughs> sense as a cover. And, I mean, it's essentially going back to what he did before. This time he didn't plagiarise tech. Because in the yeah. last season it was, he'd started his own little startup company using different S.H.I.E.L.D. tech <laughs> that had been yeah. invented and sort of stealing off of that. Whereas with this, he's obviously went, well, I can't do the technology thing. I did that the last time and I got told off. What will I do? I'm going to do music. Yeah. You could imagine him falling into it by going to perform at some form of karaoke type thing and asking for a song that doesn't exist yet. And it just clicking in his head going, ah, so I can do that. (laughs) I could write it. Yeah. I could write it. I like that. I I quite like Deke. He's kind of silly, but I always love the way he's kind of the butt of the joke. In the time loop episode when they're trying to stop Enoch and then one of them gets killed. And it's like, is Deke dead? It's like, yes. Do we need to be upset about that? No, we don't. <laughs> and then it resets again. <laughs> it's almost like, well, we know it's going to reset, so we don't have to care. But also, would we really care if Deke died? I mean, that's hard. Yeah, digging but Deke out You can out see the time. joke there. Because I can imagine that he was written as he's going to be in that sort of alt-future future timeline where we meet him originally, where it's the lighthouse floating on the remains of the Earth kind of thing. Yeah. And you're like, okay. So Deke gets left there at that point. But the fact that they managed to spin him into the rest of the seasons after that, and they did evolve the character. I don't know if initially he was meant to be as much of a comic relief as they then turned him into, but he ended up being very, very funny. And even in these episodes, the fact he's leaving himself behind and doing all that, I did expect a sort of little final cut of him making some terrible decision. <laughs> when Max sitting there at the end going, oh, I'm sure that the D calls him. I'm sure the D is doing fine. Yeah, the D. The yeah. D is doing fine. <laughs> and that's where I was expecting like a split cut to making some terrible decision at S.H.I.E.L.D. Be it <laughs> creating an army of robots. So it's some terrible decision. Yeah. Let's not call the Avengers style decision. <laughs> yeah, I like that ending for him as well. And I kind of want to see the Deke spin-off, the rock god slash director of S.H.I.E.L.D., spin-off that would be cool the deke squad's spin-off is that what you're wanting he has to stop some rogue agency from nuking the world but he also has a gig in half an hour as well so (laughs) is he gonna make it the support act has one song left we must get back in time the fans will leave us (laughs) the support act freddie mercury they just need to It'd be stuff like that, I think. I think that's what the show would be. But I wouldn't mind seeing it. An entire S.H.I.E.L.D. team made up oh, of 80s band members. Yeah. They've got to go for big yeah, names. Like Freddie yeah. Mercury and Mick Jagger. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? Build the dream 80s band. <laughs> yeah. Although I love the last thing you see of him. Once he's helped solve the issue, and it's like, I guess that means you're in charge then, doesn't it? And he's like, yes. There's people in this room that are going to see through <laughs> you almost immediately, surely. Like Victoria Hand. She's got a see through you pretty much immediately. (laughs) (laughs) You're just bluffing your way through this, aren't you? But I liked his sacrifice when Sousa was like, well, I think I should stay behind. I don't belong in this time anyway. And he does the big, like, fart noise with the thumbs down. And he's like, I'll stay. (laughs) You'll maybe see me again someday. I'm a rock god here anyway. I'm the logical choice. No one's like, no, Deke, please 
don't sacrifice yourself. Everyone's like, yeah, cool. Let's dwell on this for a second. Does anyone else here know how to yeah. plug something into the mains? Oh, you do. Cool. Deke, yeah. you can come with us after all. <laughs> We're going to speak yeah. to this guy on the radio. What's your name? <laughs> Gary? Cool. You do that, Gary. Yeah. We're taking Deke with us. Just no one questions it whatsoever. He's just like, yeah. So, uh, cool. You stay. That works for us. Maybe see you if you're born, but you might not be because it's a completely different timeline. So you might not be born after all. Whatever. We don't know. <laughs> what shame. Poor Deke. But that final conversation I had with Mac where Mac says... You don't turn your back on your friends. I know that better than anyone. That was probably the best send-off you could ever give them. It's like, no, no, you're a good guy. I recognise that, even if no one else does. Definitely, nicely done. And even getting in the final gags with the, when do we go, one, two, three, go, or one, two, three, all that over the radio. Well done. And I'm actually surprised they didn't push the button on a kind of forced relationship between him and Daisy. The fact that he was infatuated with her initially. But in fact, I don't think that infatuation ever went away, really. But she never picked up on it, let alone responded to it. I think it was always pretty much his one side thing, wasn't it? It was never really from her side. It was always from him. Even when he did the tech company, a lot of that was to impress Daisy. Yeah. And then in the framework, he had built a virtual version of her. Yeah, that was creepy. Very (laughs) creepy. Yeah. So a lot of it was, I want her to be impressed with me and everything. And then I think he realized that he had been sort of not outclassed. I think he noticed that she had never responded to him in the same way that she was responding to Sousa. Yeah. And then it was also recognised that his virtual Daisy was pretty creepy as well, because when Max saw it, he was <laughs> like, if you keep your mouth shut about this, I'll give you 10% of this company. <laughs> it's very important to me that she never finds out about this. But usually when they set up a relationship or when they set up an infatuation like that in TV shows in general, something gets done with it. I was actually expecting it to get to the point where Daisy would end up seeing a side of him that she didn't see before and then they would get together and then we'd be sitting there going, how did this relationship happen? It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I mean, if it was on a more CW line, it would be the classic love triangle of someone new coming in. One person hasn't declared their love. One person doesn't notice that they love them. And another person comes in and does declare yeah. love or an interest and the other person gets jealous. And then you have that whole run of a season where you would get all that stuff. Yeah. Whereas with this, they didn't really cross that that much. They used it more as a comic relief point yeah. at a lot of bits. Because I'm trying to remember, was it not a few seasons ago that he was leaving like bananas behind or something like that? I'm trying to remember what he was leaving in the rooms. It was some kind of fruit. I want to say pineapple, but I don't know if I'm... It might have been pineapple or lemons or lemons. something like that. Lemons, I can't... Yeah. Was it lemons? It was like, oh, well, you yeah. used to do that in the future when we wanted someone to know that we were interested in them, that we'd leave lemons. There was the throwaway line where Daisy was like, well, someone left some lemons in my bed. That's really weird. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that was good. But I think it's very real in that sense as well, because Deke might have lusted after her for a couple of years. You get so many things where people end up liking another person, but they know they'll never get anywhere or they're just not able to shake those feelings, but they can't act on them because they know it won't get them anywhere. And it became pretty clear early on that she wouldn't be interested in him. And I like that they stuck to that right until the end. Oh, definitely. One thing I never mentioned about Daisy, now that I'm thinking about it, is... Her closure with her relationship with her mother, where they have that very real conversation before her mother went insane about how parents are misguided 
but everything they do is out of love for their children. And that's at least what Jiaying believes, but Daisy never really experienced that with her as such. So the end of her relationship with her mother was very difficult, very traumatic. So it was good that she got that closure and she got to realise, okay, it was circumstance that made her into this person. Yeah, it's that when she was sort of asking the... Not the in theory questions, but the sort of, would you have responded like that as a mother? Yeah. Or what do you think your mum would mean? Yeah, and then Cora had the perspective of, I knew my mother and she tried to lock me in a cage and then eventually possibly kill mm. me, but I'm not sure. That was interesting as well, although they didn't do enough with Cora, I don't think. But I think there was little glimmers there that could have been interesting if they had more time with her. It's one of those things where part of you goes, oh, I wish they had a longer season to explore these things. Yes. Give us 22 episodes. And another part of me goes, give us 22 episodes. (laughs) And then you go, (laughs) yeah. But then the other side, it's like, how often do we have those 22 episode arcs where we go, oh no, it sagged massively in the middle. There was the two episodes that focused on Cora's family issues and that was just too long. So it's that split thing where you go, okay, I want to see more of that. But then at the same time, you go, well, I kind of realize that there was nowhere you could really fit it because you'd be taken away from a lot more. It was a very condensed season. I didn't quite get the turnaround that happens in this final episode. It did have a bit of a, well, we need this to be over in our conversation. This turn of fate, this needs to happen in this conversation right now. There was a little bit in the lighthouse in the episode before the second last episode. But in this conversation, we need her to suddenly decide, no, I'm going to let them run away. I'm going to let them escape and do this mindset change. And I wasn't 100% there because Cora is coming to terms with, oh, my mum was going to kill me. I've seen the timeline that I got killed off. So I'm kind of there. You almost needed her to change her mind in the episode before. Or be doubting. Yeah. Or be doubting or be more against Malik. They had like one conversation where she was like, you killed my mum. But it didn't seem at that point like she was, well, I'm going to leave. I've decided I'm off. At that point, that's when you're kind of expecting that. Or at least to see in the performance that realisation coming there that, oh, this isn't right. I've done the wrong thing here. It kind of works in the sense that Daisy takes the time to appeal to her better nature. She only uses her powers to defend herself. So she's not trying to hurt her. And she says a lot of things that were sensible and no if you really think about this and then malik freely admits to the fact that he killed jiaying which makes her wonder as well because she doesn't want to believe it at first because she's been told lies and then when she realizes she's been lied to that's enough for her to turn on him but i think it was all just a bit too quick uh, it was a turnaround that was too fast yeah yeah it's more we need the plot to put cora in this position yeah. by the end of the episode and that's how we're doing it by the end she needs to be willing to assist the team yeah. same as garrett yeah as well i believed garrett actually it's like well it looks like they were trying to kill me i might as well give you guys a go <laughs> well it was that point where he calls malik and malik goes oh it'd be nice knowing you buddy well yeah. done good job <laughs> it's like you're gonna get blown up anyway you know yeah. it was that sort of bit and it's like okay he would turn coat especially this young cockier version of him of course he would switch when the tide turns well, i like that grin he gives and then Colson says something like, well, that just makes it even worse. <laughs> the, the really sinister, gormless grin. Colson's like, oh, God, this is worse. <laughs> <laughs> Garrett played by Bill Paxton's son. So that was a good one. It's kind of twisted in the sense that, do I pretend to be your dad? Well, yeah, sure. <laughs> if you want to be this character your dad played, but younger. Yeah, a bit twisty, but... A good choice. I mean, he did really, really well. I don't think he did badly in it at yeah. all. It was this sort of different alt version of him. It's this younger, like you say, younger, cockier self being shown 
if you follow down this natural path, they will desert you, they yeah. will disown you. And so why don't you just skip the middle bit and just join us right away? Yeah. And I like how Victoria Han just shoots him immediately on them teleporting in. <laughs> <laughs> it was one of those bits of like, well, we've used them now, bang. And that was it. It was like, we need them just to transport them into this next scene. And then that's it. Because if you leave them behind, it's like, so what does he do now? It's another one of those, so what about this character? I don't know if they necessarily needed to kill him. Him assisting and getting them onto the ship or transporting stuff onto the Chronicon ship would have been one of the plot hole points. Yeah. Is there a risk because they can just beam anyone in and out again? So, I mean, he had no place after that, to be fair, I think. Yeah, yeah his plot use was done, and if anything, he would become a bit of a plot hole further on. But he's always this potential liability, isn't he? I don't think he would have blended into the rest of the action well enough. Yeah, he easily would have turned against them again, potentially, if the tide looked like it was going the other way yeah. again. Shooting him. I suppose it's a bit funny that they've made him that disposable <laughs> at that point. Of like, oh, it's fine. He was a double agent yeah. anyway. It's all right. <laughs> so it's cool. It's fine. You can shoot him. It was even before that. It was like, he's going to bleed out. Is that a bad thing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do we need to rescue yeah, him? It's like, what's yeah. the, Let's not worry what's about the point? that. Yeah. It's Yo-Yo or Elena, whatever you want to call her. Just She's very kind of blunt and bloodthirsty sometimes. She just seems very kind of detached in, in a lot of ways where she's willing to just let people die. But... I liked her PTSD over the season. That was really good. And after she was kind of infected by the Shrike last season, which I'd almost forgotten about, actually, but as the season began. Mm. But where she couldn't use her powers early on. And then she had that cheesy conversation with Mac where it was all about, why do you call me Yo-Yo? It's like, because you always bounce back from issues. It's like, because well, <laughs> Mac is saying it, I believe it. But yeah, that's a corny, corny-ass line. I thought it formed two good things. It was a good character development thing. It also, again... A bit like I was saying there about Garrett, it also gets rid of the plot hole thing of why don't we just, faster than the eye can see, do this, that, or the other. It sort of takes a powered person off the cards for a little bit to make it easier to get away with certain things in the plot. Yeah. But I think the PTSD was handled really well. The fact that she didn't really believe it was PTSD at first, she's more going along that, oh, something's messed with my powers and my powers don't work. Yeah. And it's only when they go there they find that, no, it's all in your head. You've got to get past this mental barrier yourself. It's not anything that we can give you. And then the origin story for her powers, as in, is it her uncle that she ends up getting killed? Because she takes the shiny thing, the thing that she thinks looks cool. Mm. And she runs out of the closet and then back into the closet. So when she gets her power, she always runs towards him and then immediately back. Her whole gimmick is a psychological trigger. She always returns to where she starts instead of moving forward. And then she connects to her powers in a more fundamental way when she really puzzles through it. And then she's just now a speedster. She can just go anywhere and she doesn't mm. have to come back. And the way that May sort of helped her puzzle through that by fighting her and stuff, that felt very well ingrained with who May is as a person. I can't give you any kind of psychological speeches about internalizing your feelings or whatever but we can't just punch each other until we get to the root of this thing and for them too it worked and i think she did something similar with daisy as well i think it's may's go-to thing i'm going to punch you in the face <laughs> until you accept you're wrong yeah <laughs> and i liked that i liked that when she connected to her powers they enhanced she became a complete version of herself after that point definitely it's maybe a shame to lose the gimmick but it's the last season whatever we don't have to deal with that but that limitation of she can use her powers for as long as she has energy to use them but eventually she will always rubber band back to the starting point that was quite a cool thing it works to put in limitations because how many times do we talk about if you have 
individuals on a show who are too power heavy, yeah. then you can end up having problems. And it's something very similar to Malik's crew of superpowered individuals. Yeah. Where you go, okay, so he's had enough time to build his own little mini army of inhumans, but how many has he got? He's got like three people. Yeah at that point and you're like he's had a lot longer to work on this he's got three of them they have to try and keep within constraints to not go too far but the time travel conceit was good for that as well as in i've had these powers longer than you it's like well well, Mm. you have maybe you're better at them and it turns out he isn't but maybe he is yeah he's not been going toe-to-toe with individuals of equal skill that's the thing he's had the powers longer but he's not necessarily been using them whereas daisy's been through a lot more experiences with them she's fought everything from aliens to different people to different weapons with them so i would say she's got more experience even if he's got more time yeah and it's reasonable that he believes that he's better even if he isn't yeah oh i mean that's the character from through isn't it it's the it's the arrogance of it in the end he's got two power sets available to him and he barely uses them (laughs) it's one of those like why did you bother at that point what was the extra give there you know of oh he's gonna fight but he's also gonna have this extra power you better only use it once (laughs) and only weekly so (laughs) that didn't quite fly at that point <laughs> as much as it was impressive the way they were sort of jousting with each other and that was impressive but you'd be like you've got two powers now you should be wiping the floor in theory in theory yeah in theory <laughs> that brings us on naturally to me who ended up being like an emotional radar which is about the opposite of what you'd expect from her given her detached relationship with her own feelings across the course of the series obviously she mellows as time goes on and gets closer to people and lets people in that is her character, that's her arc. But the fact is, she's going to receive every emotion that other people feel, and they're not hers. And I like that that kind of makes her angry, except it can't make her angry because she's not allowed to feel her own feelings. It kind of goes away, though, which is weird. It seems that she gets her own emotions back, but she's still picking up stuff from other people. They don't fully really explain it in terms of how it shifts or how it transitions. It just kind of does. It was one of those ones where... I looked at it and I was like, it just seems like a weird thing to put in this season of like, uh, why is it there as a thing? I think they enacted it really well. The fact that the episode where they throw the smoke canisters into the room and then suddenly she's as panicked as everyone else in the room, despite the fact she's yeah. wearing a mask, despite the fact that she threw the grenade in and knows exactly what's going on. She gets as panicky as everyone else. And I thought that was a neat way of doing it. But like you say, it's not really well defined in how it works or why it works the way it does. I never really saw a proper explanation for it. Yeah, it was something to do with her being in the other dimension or whatever it was. That's what triggered it. Because mm-hmm. it does get to a point where she is experiencing her own emotions while picking up other people's. Maybe that's just the natural transition of her getting used to having that ability. It's just her own feelings come to the fore at some point or she's able to separate them out. But at first she was very mm. detached, so she couldn't connect to Coulson because she didn't recognise him as being a real person because she felt nothing from him. She felt nothing from him and felt nothing for him, which is the ultimate tragedy considering their history. And then in the penultimate episode where she hugs Daisy and then Daisy's like, what the hell is this? I'm not used to this. And she feels that and she's like, oh, sorry. And I was like, no, it's cool. I just wasn't expecting it. And then when she says to Yo-Yo, I felt you and Max reunion. <laughs> and then it's like, oh. Oh dear. (laughs) That kind of realisation of what she actually picked up on. And then it seemed at first it only kicked in when she touched someone, but then there was obviously kind of a short range aspect to it, which, as you say from the canister, but that makes sense. But she was a chronicom detector, which helped for a bit until they were able to 
Well, no, even after they were able to pretend to be emotional. It was more that she would be able to detect if she got close. It worked in an aspect and it was used for the final thing. But May's always been, like you say, she's always been a bit closed off. So it's more like giving her a disadvantage. You know, she's normally so cool, calm and collected. But now it's like she's got this vulnerability that she didn't have before. And they always played into the May's really cold and distant, but then secretly she's playing pranks on people on the ship. Yeah. Things like that. I always liked that they did that with the character of going, yes, she's serious because she's doing a serious job. But then occasionally they would just drop in these hints in the background. She's setting up pranks on people, playing jokes. I liked that. And they did the stuff with her husband as well. She was a completely different person around her ex-husband when that happened. Mm. There was no doubt that she became close to the team and they had that stuff it was in the alternate timeline but with robin the kid the precog kid so you saw that she was obviously capable of making these connections it's just if she could help it she would try not to but then her empathic ability feeds into what she becomes as an instructor because that's the perfect ability Mm. to have when you can feel the anxieties and whatever else of the people in her class so she can determine who the best agents are out of them or determine who needs help and all that kind of stuff so that's the perfect way to use that ability or it's a perfect way to use it it's one of many perfect ways to use it no definitely it it plays into the way that she was going to be used in the future like you say it was her learning to control it she's now got it maybe being overwhelmed you're getting so many signals in that you can't process your own and then slowly she's able to learn how to filter and control it that way i think and if she's able to do that with class and then teaching and there was always that hint, you know, the fact that she's always sort of trained the newcomers to the team. Yeah. She's always been involved, especially the whole thing with Sky and Daisy was her training and taking her on board at that point. And then she's helped so many others when they've come onto the team to train them up as well. So, yeah, I thought her moving into that sort of role in an academy makes sense. Yeah, plus her, I suppose, separating out her own emotions from everything is in keeping with her character as well, because she is all yes. about honing her skills, learning how things work, getting better, getting stronger, understanding more. So given a little bit of time, she does sit through it, I would imagine, just internally. She's just like, okay, this is definitely my emotion because I remember feeling this way about this person or whatever. And she has to separate the fact that she feels nothing from Coulson from the fact that she once felt something for him. So they're able to create that connection later on from the fact that she, I guess, remembers or understands her connection to the original so is able to sort that out in her own way maybe they don't explain it and maybe they didn't have to and i guess that we've just come up with an explanation on our own in that respect so (laughs) we're filled in the blanks it's fine i mean yeah i'm not saying that they have to spell out absolutely everything to us and i think that leads us naturally on to a point where they did have to spell everything out for us and it didn't really work (laughs) fitz and simmons i think Simmons struggled for a lot of the season. She was still really good. And I think Elizabeth Henstridge especially deserves a lot of credit for the the performances she's given over the years with different things that her characters had to do. But that mystery around where is Fitz? Why can she not remember him? Why doesn't she know where he is? Why is there an implant in her brain? Why is she being so cagey and secretive? was just super tedious. And we had to put up with it for 11 bloody episodes before they started answering any questions. It took a long time. I think it was Deke that initially finds out about the implant. Yeah. And then slowly more people find out through sort of the time loop episode and things like that. 
And it seemed like that was something that you could have opened with earlier. I suppose the excuse given is if any of you were caught, you could reveal the fact that I have the implant and then it's pointless. And if I'm caught and I remember where Fitz is, then it's all over. And I don't think it was a good enough explanation, to be honest. It seemed a bit weak because in this episode, it's basically the Chronicons that inject something into her and it dismantles the implant (laughs) almost, you know, within what we're saying let's say real time, maybe 30 minutes or something like that happens, right? But it seems like, well, it wasn't really much of a defense. It would take you out against standard interrogation. Mm. But anything beyond that, it's just failed. It wouldn't have worked if you had been captured. The explanation is never going to live up to how long this is taking, and it really doesn't. And then you get the first sighting of Fitz in the 12th episode, no, 11th episode, and it's all this cryptic conversation they're having, which is good in the sense that they're having a conversation about stuff they both know, so therefore there's no need for them to repeat the fact. Mm-hmm. For instance, there's blood work mentioned, which I don't think is brought up in any meaningful way later on. I guess we're meant to extrapolate the fact that the blood work refers to the pregnancy. Maybe, yeah. But it seems weird that it would be blood work would be the thing. What we're supposed to take from that is, oh my God, maybe Fitz has cancer or something and is dying or some kind of radiation sickness or whatever. He's dying. That's what we're taking from this. And maybe he's already dead. And that's what we're supposed to think because she has that very emotional reaction. There's that flash, yeah, yeah. When they disable it in the time loop episode. So we're definitely supposed to be thinking along those lines. And in that sense, it's manipulative. But even in that episode, it's like, oh, good. We've got some new Fitz footage, but it's not really <laughs> telling us anything. And then, as I predicted in a review at the time, what can they do now other than Fitz turns up and just tells us everything? And that's what he does. So you're getting this scene that you could have had something more meaningful and it's just Fitz explaining stuff. Yeah, I suppose it's let's fill in the blank that's been there. And like you say, you leave a mystery for so long, it's got to be a big mystery. I suppose the justification for why they did it the way they did is the daughter, and they still kept that secret back a little bit though apparently some of the promo images that they released leaked it apparently yeah it was kind of obvious up to a point though it was at the point where Fitz was like she's forgotten something really important where she's forgotten the most important thing there was a point where it's like oh yeah they've had a kid because it was at the point in the 11th episode when they were still being cagey about it and Fitz suggested we could take some time and just have some time to ourselves and live for a bit and have some happiness because we're entitled to that and at that point I was thinking to myself, well, how long did they do that for? Do they have a child? That kind of thing. I was sort of thinking, how long did they spend out? They've had enough time to make a time ship. Yeah. <laughs> they've had enough time to come up with something like this. So they've obviously been away for a bit longer than you think. I mean, the initial secrecy I thought was that she was also a robot, a decoy, an yeah. LMD kind of thing. I thought that was where it was pushing to, is that she's been away for so long, it's not actually her anymore. Yeah. That's how she knew how to make Colson. Yeah. Exactly. It's like they were dying of old age kind of thing. They had to make younger bodies to go back and help everyone. They had their full lives, but then still wanted to help. So that's the solution that they came up with. But yeah, you end up with the exposition, but you kind of need it to then know what's going on. I think there would have been a more interesting way to do it or a more interesting way to drip feed it through the season. But it seems like a lot of it was maybe written around, oh, we're not going to have fits for the season. We've decided we're not having fits. I mean, how many times have they tried to kill them off or hide them for half a season? You know what I mean? You have these heartfelt moments where it's like, oh my God, I can't believe they've killed off Fitz. It's like, oh, he's back. It's fine. Okay, fine. Well, apparently <laughs> they were scheduling things. They got him for like the last three episodes. Well, two episodes, really. Because his appearance in the penultimate episode is like 10 seconds at the end. 
But I think they just made the best of what they could get with him. But it's such a shame that in the final season that the most engaging pairing on the show is given such short shrift like that. It's become a meme, hasn't it, across the years where it's, oh, look, they seem to be having an opportunity to live together and be a couple. And, oh, no, it's been ripped out of their hands again. She's on another planet now or he's dead or whatever. (laughs) Yeah, they just don't ever get the chance to settle down. And they get their happy ending at the end, which is great. And I think the child thing is the perfect ending in that sense. As They finally get to that point where it's, right, okay, nothing's going to get in our way now. We're just going to live yeah, they've done enough. They've done their service. Yeah, the mystery surrounding it just did not work for me. And I would have quite liked for part of it throughout, maybe they could have just mentioned the fact that Simmons seems a little bit older. She's at least, what, five years older than she was when they last saw her. Someone finding a random kid's toy on the Zephyr, something like something that. Like that. Or just the fact that, does she not seem a little bit older to you? Or what? You know, could it just been something oblique or she starts using weird terminology or I don't know. But obviously she doesn't remember anything about the last five years other than the fact that she doesn't remember the last five years. And they never say how long they're away as well. Yeah, she starts calling everyone young yeah. man. She's wearing spectacles, <laughs> has a pocket full of Weverall's yeah. originals, wearing cardigans. I think she always wore cardigans, to be fair. That's never changed. <laughs> always in cardigans. But, you know, maybe a step up a notch with like Weverall's yeah. original in there. It's like, why does she always have sweets? Not that I'm complaining. Sweet. It would have just been something like that. Like Deke would have noticed it, especially with that being his grandmother. Or maybe you're being more motherly. Yeah. Go with something like that, spitting on a tissue and wiping something off your face, <laughs> that kind of thing. I mean, that would have probably descended into, this is ridiculous, but... Yeah. Well, I mean, Yeah, they could have been yeah. subtle with it in some way. There's a reason I'm not a writer on these TV shows. <laughs> yeah. People will be like, why is Simmons acting like such a weirdo? It's like, oh, right, that's why. Yeah. Uh, I still hate it. But yeah. I still hate this, yeah. <laughs> There's a lot to take in with Fitz being like, right, okay, we're going to go through the quantum realm, back to our own timeline, and then we're going to do this. And we're the people in hazmat suits that you saw at the end of last season. And then we're going to do this, and we have to fix this. And we're, then we're going to give the Chronicoms empathy. And then by the end, you're like, holy crap, that is so much to take in. And then you've got... Piper standing around, it's like, we'll be back in five seconds. And then they are back in five seconds. And then we'll be back in a minute. But if we're not, then open the door and then you'll see why we're so worried. And then the, the kid's in there and he's always been in there and that kind of stuff. It's just, oof, this is a lot. This is a lot for like 20 minutes. Yeah, let's explain what happened in the, the last episode of the last season and tie it all together. And you need that. You do need that moment of, okay, let's fill in the blanks here. This is how all this played out. And I think the explanation is enough. I think it goes into it a bit. You still wonder how they explained the plan to Coulson and the team members. <laughs> you know, because we were seeing the plan play out. It's like, how do you explain all this? You know, so now we're going to do this. Then we're going to do that. Then we're going to do that. Yeah, they made a point of Coulson's the one that can keep up with us. And he's like, right, cool, tell it. I'll manage. And everyone else might be a little overwhelmed and stuff. And the thing is, I only really understood what was going on the second time I watched it. Because I watched the episode twice for this podcast. And I watched the scene a couple of times when I was writing the review. But at the time, I was just like, hang on, slow down. (laughs) I'm really not sure Mm -hmm. what you're getting at here. And then I kind of understood what was happening. And it made enough sense and it all added together. But it's the fact is we waited 12 episodes to get Fitz back. And then when we get him back, he spends a lot of his screen time just telling us stuff. It is an unfortunate position that he's ended up in where he comes back from a gap and has to explain something. Between the separation when he was off in space 
there was the time travel one where he had he was like explain where Fitz is, where he's been, what's happened, what have you met? And it was the things like when he was explaining to Simmons what their life was like, and it's just quick cuts of happy memories. But with those two characters in particular, this show has done a really good job of giving us these very off format episodes. You had the one where Simmons was on a planet on her own, the mm. one where Fitz was in prison, the one where they were sat in like a framework types thing because the Chronicoms wanted them to figure out time travel and they just sat and chatted and they worked through their emotional issues. That was the one with the safety goggle teddy bears and all that kind of stuff, you know, that one. And that was an off-format episode about them. So I was kind of expecting an off-format episode about them during that time they spent together, which would have been better, I think. Yeah, maybe a full episode going into it. Because I've not shined away from that before where they have done, like you say, the off-kilter episode or... They've done a full episode where they take you away from the primary story and show you what happened. Yeah. So maybe, but again, it's another one that was maybe down to a time constraint that they've had. Oh, probably, yeah. We don't have enough Ian, whatever his name is. Yeah, we don't have enough Ian and we don't have enough episode space to fit this sort of thing in. Yeah. And I think we said earlier, but I, th- I liked Fitz's kind of cold reaction to, right, this timeline only exists <laughs> so we can get Cora, so now we're going back and everyone else is like, hang on a minute, we're not leaving this timeline at the mercy of the Chronicoms. <laughs> That's not fair. And it makes sense from their point of view because they've lived through those years, albeit at a faster pace because they've been jumping around. But Mac has had to mourn the loss of his parents, had to accept the fact that an alternate version of him grows up without them. And everyone has lost something. Daisy's lost Jiang, etc. And they've all been part of this timeline. It's like, we can't just leave it here. And Fitz is like, but if we don't leave it as it is, that means that there's a 20% chance that we'll succeed, the 80% chance of failure. And they're like, whatever, we just need to do it. And then Deke comes up with a magical solution. Oh, but we just need to use the New York City power grid and then we'll be fine. We can take them with us. And it was a quick resolution. We've seen Fitz be cold and detached before. And the fact that he just doesn't care about essentially this Petri dish that he's made, it's the equivalent of we're going to grow this culture of bacteria so we can cure a virus in this petri dish but he doesn't care about the <laughs> stuff in the petri dish and it's just a whole universe of people and lives and the impact, futures yeah. and he doesn't care about that and they did a bit of that in avengers endgame as well we're going back to these points in history to get the infinity stones but we haven't realized that oh no we're actually dooming our whole universe here unless we've returned it so it's that heroic thing again they're heroic so they're going to save as many people as possible and that means this other timeline, even at their own risk. Reminds me that bubble, bubble is a great word. Bubble, yeah. <laughs> just, just saying that bubble is a great word. <laughs> but yeah, you're absolutely right. It was that coldness of, we purposefully sent you here, purposefully put you through all the toils and torment that you've been through just to get all the tools and all the things that we need to go back. And there was a, whatever the percent chance was. But it also contrasts with the Chronicons at that point. The fact that Fitz is talking in percentage variables of chance. There's an 80% chance, there's a 20% chance, a 30% chance. And then at the same time, you've got the Chronicons doing the exact yeah. same. Where they're treating everything based on those variables. And that's what he's done as well. Yeah, and plus there's that thing in his history about when he was wrestling with this dark side, the Hydra fits he had a particular name but i can't remember what it was it was like the doctor or yeah whatever it was whatever it was 
the, the Hydra fits. It was always within him, and he had to acknowledge that. I like that in that episode where they, oh, no, he came out of that dreamland or whatever it is that's underneath the lighthouse. No, he didn't. It's just Fitz has gone nuts and has become this guy as well. And then they did that Simmons, like the bottled up Simmons and the Hydra fits in the framework thing as well that they did. That was another good example <laughs> of that. But it's the idea that Fitz, for a while now, has always been willing to make that sacrifice sacrifice other people for what he considers to be the greater good. So he didn't think about dooming an entire timeline to subjugation by the Chronicoms because his timeline was more important. And the world that he'd created as in his well, his daughter is more important. And he has to be talked round to the idea of, no, no, we can't leave these people because they are still people. Even though they were created by our actions, they are people. Like the Star Trek reboot <laughs> was a good way of bringing in that whole, oh no, Fitz could be a bit problematic unless he has his moral centre to keep him in check, which would be Simmons. Yeah, Simmons is obviously the one that fed in that we've got to go back now. We can't stay out here anymore. We've got to go back and we've got to fix it sometime. Yeah, that was good. So last character. We talked about Susa earlier, his relationship with Daisy. I liked it. I liked him in general. He was just reliable, consistent. His observations on things, all the tech stuff, and then the bit where he was questioning the time machine. It's like, hang on, we're using this time machine. You don't know how it works. Is that not confusing to <laughs> any of you? And the fact that he was just saying the common sense things. And I think he was always used well. And as I said, his relationship with Daisy worked really well. I like the dad talk. It should really be a brother talk, but it felt more like a dad talk that Matt gave him. As in, it's like, if you hurt her, not just me, the whole <laughs> team. And we have technology you can't even imagine. We'll hurt you so hard if you do anything wrong. No, I think he was a great addition, like I said. He was the common sense voice. He looked at stuff plain and simple. In the end, it was him that came up with the aren't we standing on top of like six different bombs that we could yeah. use to get out of here kind of thing. It was him that pointed those kind of things out. And I think he was a great sort of support character in this throughout really really good as a person for Daisy to turn to in particular in the time loop episode they played on that really yeah. well in the episode where they're both locked up in that barn this torture that she goes through and, and he's there to support and talk her through it yeah so I think they played with that character really really well I mean, he gets his new leg and he's like I'll take your bags Daisy I want to put some weight in this new leg stuff like that yeah being really chivalrous doing everything like that and I've got to admit at first I was like that's not the Agent Carter character that we wanted <laughs> at first you go oh come on really is this the way we're going but then do you know what they sort of won me over and I went oh good choice of course um, it just makes sense you couldn't do much with Agent Carter you can do a lot more with him yeah. yeah, I loved some of the stuff that they did. Him and Mac sort of MacGyvering up a solution based on whatever they had was pretty good. Even though that was the fact that they only sent six Chronicoms to the hangar. Oh, yeah. It's the villain being over cocky and stupid aspect, and that always peeves me off. It's like, oh, we've come up with a plan, we've uh, analysed all the variables. How many people should we send to take them down? Oh, I don't know. Let's send six. Should we send anyone else to maybe check on the six? No. Shall we check any... I don't know, the footage, considering that we've been able to like hack into the Zephyr earlier on. <laughs> we just have a look and see if they've died yet. Uh, no, no, they haven't. Why have we even still got that in our hangar? Why haven't we ejected it into space? It has now served its purpose. <laughs> Brought them here. The whole thing was that we needed Daisy to get here to have this conversation with Simmons. We do not need the Zephyr anymore. Vent the hangar. <laughs> it's, like it's done. There's lots of those elements where you just go, oh, why not at this point? And it did seem a bit stupid, but it just sort of plays into that whole 
cockiness of the villain. It's the old sort of James Bond thing of now let me explain the cunningness of my plan just in time for you to escape sort of thing. Even if they'd been interrupted by a couple of waves of them now and again, it would have been okay because they already mentioned that Mac had a couple of shotguns or 50 shotgun shells. So it's not as if they would have been wanting for... Yeah, they had the shells and they had their own weapons that they had raided off the initial ones that they took out with this blast thing. So they could have had another couple of waves coming through trying to get them or like the occasional one walking past spotting what's happened and be about to call out and then getting shot in the head or something. Yeah, yeah. something like that. It's a bit weird. But I like the dynamic that they had and how Mac was rooting for the relationship and kept making fun of him for his old-timey speak. What was the word he used? A trout in the milk. Well, a trout in the milk was quite good. It's like circumstantial evidence. That's what it means when he said peachy. And don't let Daisy hear you say it in the He's like, why not? Does it mean something different now? He's like, no, it's a fine word. You're a good man. And it's like that old time and stuff. And then obviously at the end, when Daisy just repeats the fact, yeah, he's a dork. And, and she says it so affectionately. <laughs> and then turns to Coulson, speaking of dork, I guess Daisy still pretends to be cool, even though, you know, she's changed a lot. But that was good. I liked all that stuff. I thought he folded in well. And I want to see more of him, but don't get to see more of him, obviously. Unless we do at some point, who knows? Last prominent character was Enoch. And I'm not exaggerating here when I think he's as good as Brent Spiner is at playing an android. I think he just does it with so much depth and nuance and everything else. I think he's just so good at that performance. I think he toes the line between having a completely dispassionate performance, completely emotionless performance, but without it being robotic. There's still character to it rather than him just sounding like a machine. The bad way to do it would be, sounds like Siri. Yeah, sounds like a flat line all the yeah. time and no intonation, but instead it does provide a bit of depth and you do feel for the character. When he's left in the bar and he's just getting the phone calls and he's so excited, you know, oh, he's getting to hear from people and he's wanting to ask how everyone is <laughs> and he's just saying, oh, can you transfer me, please? Yeah. Just transfer me, please. Just transfer me, please. You get that sort of tone. You, you end up feeling for the character despite the fact, like you say, he's playing it. He's deadpan. It's not emotionless. It's difficult to describe. And the fact it's difficult to describe must mean that it is intensely difficult to try and portray yeah. that on screen. And I think he does such a good job at it. I'm completely with you on it. It's a really good Android performance. He's experienced around humans. He's been with Fitz for all this time. We've seen multiple reboots of Enoch over time. <laughs> this isn't even the original one that we started yeah. with. And I've got to say that when he first appeared on screen as a character, I was like, I don't like him. <laughs> don't like it at all. He just seemed very disposable. He turned up as a villain initially to sort of capture them and send them to the obelisk yeah. and take them through. <laughs> and you're like, well, we're not going to see him again. That's it. That's done. The sort of faceless character that sort of abducted our heroes, he's going to get disposed of in the next episode. It's going to be found that he's done this for some agency and he gets wiped out. And instead, we end up going on adventures with him and Fitz in space. <laughs> raiding a casino and doing all sorts of different stuff that you just wouldn't expect so he really really grew on me as a character and i think part of that is definitely down to the performance yeah and there was such wonderful touches as well when he gets left in the is it in the 50s he gets left when they jump away without Mm. him or is it in the 30s it might be in the 30s the first time and then do they then call him to then get transferred i can't remember so it's one of the two yeah oh it's the 30s because he goes to work with Koenig. Oh, he fills the space in the bar, yeah, yeah because he's down a staff member yeah. in the bar, so he, when, he starts working when there. When the Zephyr vanishes, it's just the complete non-reaction he has, where he just looks for a second, 
then turned around and walked away. It's like, oh well, <laughs> next thing. And then he has that one character you can leave behind because he is ageless. He can live through the decades for as much as he wants. And then I love the way they did his death where, again, they asked big questions about what death is, as in it's more difficult for the people left behind. It's easy for the ones who die because they don't have to be there anymore. And then what's beyond that can't be answered. What's beyond that for a machine? Could they, in theory, just repair him and he'd come back? We don't really know. Yeah, would he be the same? I mean, you're back into this reboot and Coulson from backup tapes yeah. kind of thing. Is he ever the same again? Yeah. And I love the way he makes that sacrifice as well. It's that whole, well, we need that thing that's inside him. We need his power core or whatever, and he just rips it out, and it's off screen as well. He's just holding it in his hand when it pans back to him, and it's like, oh, here you go. No questions asked. But also when he was programmed to protect Simmons' implant at all costs, <laughs> and he was just demolishing them the whole time. Brilliant. Even if it means killing you yeah. all. <laughs> Initially, it's subtly done with the gas, and then it's just them all piling onto him and still getting killed. It's like, how did he do that? Yeah. How did he kill us all? And you don't see most of it. It's just, yeah, he tore through us somehow. It's just everyone lying on the floor afterwards. <laughs> yeah. Well, this isn't working. <laughs> yeah, that was great. His death scene was brilliantly done, and then you saw him again in the flashbacks for Fitz and Simmons and stuff, but he was a great character, and I liked the way that they played with him throughout the series developed him and the line that got me in the death scene was his explanation of i've never experienced loneliness before yeah. i've been alone but i've never experienced loneliness until i got left behind mm. and i was like oh <laughs> is that thing i've been alone often but i've never been lonely and now i know what loneliness is and i don't want to be lonely when i go to the other sides of things yeah. like oh my god it was great he was great and he was used really well throughout the season and yeah so that's all our characters. Before we discuss the ending, because I think it needs discussed on its own, but did you have any particular highlights from the final season that you wanted to mention that we've maybe not mentioned already? We've mentioned quite a lot of the sort of little episode bits that I liked. I really liked the time loop episode. I thought the time loop episode on a whole was one of the best time loop variations that I've seen. Yeah. I think it's inevitable if a show runs for long enough to do a time loop episode. Yeah, any genre show that runs for long enough will eventually do one. Yeah, exactly. Eventually it comes round. <laughs> it's inevitable. I think it's one of the best set ones that they've managed to do. I think they explained the rules of the time loop really well. And like you say, they injected elements of humour. They put in so many bits in that that it just worked really, really well. And time loops have to be self-aware now, don't they? Because if you live in a universe like Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. occupies, everyone's seen Groundhog mm. Day. Yeah, exactly. It's like you've got to <laughs> accept Susan. Yeah. It's you spend one of the loops making him watch right. yeah, That's day. it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, it'd be like 10 of them because they only had, what, like 20 minutes or whatever. I'm not sure how long they yeah, And then he would forget the yeah, rest that's of it, it anyway. Yeah, yeah. You need to watch the same. Exactly. You can watch 10 minutes of Groundhog Day. <laughs> no, I, I just thought that loop was done really, really well. It was the extra jeopardy as well, as in every loop we get slightly closer to death. So it's a loop, but it's not a loop. Yeah, it's not limitless. I've seen it before where it's like the adrenaline cycle and you keeps building up because you're not actually getting any sleep. You just keep waking up as if you've slept. Seen those kind of bits of jeopardy put in a time loop episode before. Yeah, or there's a weird one in Happy Death Day, if you've seen that. If not, you should. It's really good. But there's the bit where she's getting like injured. It's as if she gets killed every time. But they never explain how she's still alive <laughs> by the end because she's sustained fatal injuries like hundreds of times by that point but they kind of forget about it but they bring it up as a potential issue spoilers for happy death <laughs> day in case you haven't seen it but you should watch it it's really good the two of them actually two films very good it's like a slasher movie time loop thing but the time loop bit's better than the slasher movie bit 
the slasher movie bit kind of gets forgotten about. And then the second one's a proper sci-fi mystery film as well. So it changes up. But yeah, we've had numerous examples of time loops. Legends of Tomorrow did a good one where it was a simulation, computer simulation. Supernatural did a great one. Star Trek The Next Generation did a great one. No, this was one of the best time loop examples I've ever seen and one of the best episodes of the show as well. I think it was a great episode of the show. I think it was done really well. I'm trying to think of other different bits and pieces. <laughs> I'll let you go with one and jog my memory. I like the short circuit robots ah, in the yes. 80s one and Max Headroom Coulson. On the telly, getting wheeled about on the TV. <laughs> yeah, and I liked that they referenced it afterwards where he was like, I had no body, but I felt really thirsty. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that kind of, I don't know what that means, but yeah, but they were feeling about it in the telly. And then I loved the bit where they were having that big circle moment where it was like, yeah, go team. And he's like, can someone wheel me? wheel me in here it's like i'm out on the side no that was good actually there was lots of bits of that episode i liked it was very fun because it was like a deke centered episode that was just very funny yeah. and they kind of did it as a really good foil to what was going on with mac so great episode then. the robot designs were amazing those kind of retro crappy short circuit style robots they looked like that and obviously they directly reference that when Matt calls one of them short circuit mm. yeah and it was the oh look at it it's so weak we're just going to break it that it like kills the person immediately it was yeah <laughs> I like the alien commies from the future episode that's the one with the moist quote that mm. led us in on is that the one where they pretend to be the aliens as well they abduct the guy yeah. and they leave them floating in the in the quinjet, in the quinjet. yeah yeah oh it's done so well and the interrogation scene for the scientists was absolutely hilarious where it's just right we need to check all the scientists to see if they're chronicoms how do we do this and they look at them they all look like <laughs> scientists from the 1950s it's like oh, great they're all just standard nerds what are we going to do and then they try and just piss them off or upset them by interviewing them and you have simmons pretending to be peggy carter because she's english <laughs> <laughs> Great. I don't know if it's my favourite episode of the seat. Well, no, the time loop is, but that's certainly a highlight, that mm. one in general. It's just a lot of fun. I was done well. I was glad that they got Patrick Warburton back as well as the guy running the base. After he had appeared on all the video screens when they first go into the lighthouse, and it's sort of welcome yeah. to the lighthouse sort of thing. You almost see the reason why the computer has an inbuilt alien invasion option is because a form Except of this it's, different it's a different timeline time but you know what i mean it's like it's got an alien invasion option i like to think it's tied into this even though yeah. i'll that timeline but you know and when he was trying to flirt with me but in an hr approved way. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's clearly been at a seminar recently and, and has had to change his habits a little bit and she went by chastity mcbride as well which made it even funnier <laughs> But yeah, I like that. Patrick Warburton was good to have back. I wish they'd used him a little bit better, but I think he was good when he did appear. Mm. Just his voice, he just sounds kind of ridiculous enough to work. Any other highlights you can think of? Oh, I'm sure there's a lot. They're not springing into my mind at the moment. I think we've captured most of them. Those two particular episodes, well, three particular episodes, really. A lot of the character stuff I really liked. I really liked just seeing them interact, knowing it was some of the last scenes we'd ever see them perform together was really good and something they did throughout the season as well certainly in the early part was when they were visiting those timelines they made a point of commenting on how they're less than ideal because mm. when you look at the 1950s and stuff sometimes it gets overblown with nostalgia and they kind of forget about the widespread racism that existed at the time but then you had mac in a diner or whatever it was getting dirty looks from the waitress because he's black and then the segregated bathrooms as well where he has to deal with that. And it's just how real this time is. 
and Daisy having to deal with the fact that people dismissed her because she's a woman and an Asian woman, no less. Mm. No, I think they dealt with that very well because it's, like you say, they either need to go right into it or they end up ignoring it in TV a lot of the time. And like yeah. you say, they'll play the nostalgia elements, they'll put rock and roll music on the radio, they'll go to an old school diner, but they never play with that kind of thing. On a, a recent podcast, I talked about Umbrella Academy uh, season two, and they travel back to the 1960s. And again, very similar. They do deal with a lot of those issues through the show and done in a very yeah. good way, very similar to this. And the different angles they had, they used the perspective of the characters because Colson was like, oh, I love the 50s. Because he's nostalgic for the 50s. I mean, he's not old enough to have lived through them, I guess. Well, I don't think he... No, he's not. No. He wasn't born in the 50s. No, no, no. <laughs> no, Clark Gregg's not that old. He's middle-aged. <laughs> he's not an old maybe man. Maybe Clark Gregg is a robot. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Maybe it explain a lot. <laughs> But he's nostalgic for it. So I guess in the 80s when 50s nostalgia would have been heavy, he would have been all about that. And he talks about how it was a time of great innovation and all that kind of stuff. So his perspective is, as a white man, he looks back on it favourably. But then once it's pointed out to him, well, wait, that's not the best, then he starts thinking about it differently. But he has to have his bias checked. And it's good to give that perspective because the S.H.I.E.L.D. team, not that many white people on it, if you think about it. It was just Colson, really. It is a very diverse cast. Yeah, because Max Black, you've got two Asian women and so on. Even got a Scottish person in there. Yes, <laughs> you don't get much whiter than that. He wasn't there at the time. Simmons was English, white and English, I suppose. But yeah, so Colson is your straight white male and he's the only one. He's outnumbered by everyone else in that sense. So the fact is he does get his bias checked when he's in the 50s. And it's like, well, it might be great for you, but I just had to use a different toilet for no reason. And... Yeah, okay, that's not the best. That's kind of embarrassing. And the way they just constantly addressed that throughout was interesting. And then funnily enough, because obviously the filming would have been done a long time ago because they managed to get everything finished before lockdown happened. So it ended up being really topical because of what was going on in the world at that point. Not that it's never mm. topical otherwise. Obviously these issues still exist. It's just they became a bit more publicly prominent recently because of various things that happened. And then the season ends on a Zoom call. (laughs) The only way we can interact is digitally. And my God, do you actually have access to the time stream? (laughs) Did you see all this coming? Did you know it was going to (laughs) happen? The reasons for them dropping off the Zoom call are essentially the reasons that you would normally get. is like, oh, the kids are running around my ankles. I've got to go. I've got to drop (laughs) off just now. Oh, my signal's getting low. That's my internet dropping out. Can I go? Yeah. I'm going to another meeting. Other meetings. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I'm on the train. I'm going to go on the tunnel. <laughs> Goodbye. Yeah. yeah, going through a nebula. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah, but that final scene was great as a kind of touchstone of where we're all going, where we've all ended up. And I also like the fact that S.H.I.E.L.D. has been restored to that monolithic organisation being run the right way. Or the implication is being run the right way. Yeah, that's the implication, is that they've managed to rebuild, or at least they've rekindled something, to the extent where they're able to have a helicarrier. So let's go with, they've they've managed to do a lot to restore it and bring it back. They've got an academy, they've got a helicarrier, they're running ops. It's been restored, in a sense, in the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. verse, they have managed to do it. And that's a good note to leave it on, because how many times at the end of a season has it been that the only people escaping that are S.H.I.E.L.D. members are on the Zephyr, and that's it. Everyone else has just been wiped (laughs) out, be it robot invasion, government agents, whatever, yeah. Yeah, and it ties into the Nick Fury quote about being a part of something bigger. Mm. And they each become that small, well, that significant part of something bigger than themselves. So they all splinter off and they end up 
running this different part of Shield or being involved in this different part of Shield. It's a much bigger organization, but it's all kind of exploded out from them. And they've built a pure version of the organization, which is what Colson was trying to do from day one. Everything he believed in. And then Mac just believes in it because that's the kind of guy he is. And that's the way he wants to conduct himself. So, yeah, you get the impression that he is made it into the organisation that it always should have been without the corruption, Mm. which is a great note to end on, I think, for the show. The fact that they kind of make a tradition out of, we're going to meet up here once every year, but the implication sort of is, it's that thing that Daisy was worried about. We are just people that used to work together that catch up once in a while. I mean, Fitz did say this is the last time we'll all be in the same room together. I don't think that necessarily has to be the case. There's nothing preventing them from meeting up again. I suppose the only way that line works is because of Deke. But at that point, they were going away with him anyway. Yeah, at that point, they were planning to leave together. So it, it does seem weird that it's like, oh, we've been able to predict so far ahead that we just know that our paths are never going to cross again. Because it seems like yeah. it could at some point. What would stop that family coming together for a wedding or for another child at Fitz and Simmons' household or whatever? Why wouldn't they meet again for that? Granted, they'll be busy. They'll be doing different things. But there's nothing to say that a reunion wouldn't happen. I suppose yeah. it's because it's final season, final episode. It's like, give them a reason for feeling what we're feeling. So give the yeah. characters on screen a reason for feeling like this is the end of something and not the beginning of something new. Because we, as an audience, we want to see their reaction to this being the end, even though it isn't, if you know what I mean. So as much as those characters are going on, and we can imagine in our heads that the characters are going on to doing different things, we want to be able to see on screen the fact that they are also going through the same feelings that we are, that the show is ending. Yeah, they might meet up for dinner or whatever, but it'll never be the same, and I guess that's the point of the whole thing. And you can already see the shades of them just starting to drift apart because they all have other commitments, they're all doing different things and they really enjoy being around each other. But it's May that says, maybe we should just call it. But you get the sense that they're about to run out of stuff to talk about in that moment. And there's something of an awkwardness to that conversation as well. So it is almost like you meet up with a colleague that you used to work with five years ago and you end up being like, "Mm, actually, when we're out of the office, there's nothing to say. (laughs) So... (laughs) When we're not in life-threatening danger, it turns out we don't have that much in common. That's really weird. (laughs) And they don't explicitly state that, but you get the implication that, yeah, okay, maybe Mac and May couldn't meet up for a drink and have a lot to talk about. Yeah, it's one of those things when you've experienced so much together and you've been through so many different lives and variations of yourself. What is there left to tell? What secrets have you got to share? What story haven't you told? What funny anecdote have you not delivered to someone over that period? So when you do meet for conversation, you're doing a quick update. I mean, it's closer than former colleagues. I wouldn't say it's quite that, not cold, but that detached because it is sort of family in that sense for what they've been through together but there's that mutual understanding that the things that don't need to be said but are implicit in those relationships you don't need to say this stay safe be careful anything like that it's all implied it's all there and it's all known out in the open anyway but yeah i think the way they left it that they are going to meet up every year they are going to have a conversation every year is a nice way to do it where they all end up physically with what they're doing is like we've explained when we've been talking about the characters, it's all believable that they would go off to do these things and that would be their individual Mm -hmm. endings. All make sense, really. You know, as much as you'd like to see them all getting into the Zephyr and heading off on another adventure and you're like, oh, they're continuing on to do their thing. I think seeing that the team are all going off on their own paths and 
beings of something bigger make sense. Well, what you just said was what they did in the last, what they thought was mm. going to be series finale. Yeah. Where we've accepted that Coulson's going to die. We're going to leave him and May to have a happy few weeks together, however long he has left. And we're going to continue on in his honour. And that was that ending. And they couldn't do that again because... If they did, it'd be like, well, we had that and it was two years ago and that was fine then, but we need something different this time. I mean, that was such a perfect ending to that arc. And I think I said on the podcast that we did about it at the time, I'd be quite happy with that being the series finale. Well, it was definitely crafted as one. It was. It was 100% crafted as it because you could believe that, oh, they're going to go off and they're going to find Fitz because Fitz is still out there kind of thing. We've just been hit by that sore note of, oh my God, we can't believe he's gone. And then it's like, no, actually, he's there. There's hope. <laughs> so yeah. they're going off to complete that mission meanwhile you get the ending from me and colson that you've wanted for the people that have been sort of shipping them throughout you want that ending yeah. and you get it you know you get to see him relaxing on the beach that's the way he wanted to go and he's accepted it and you're like that that was the perfect ending for them you've then got to come in and go oh we've got to do another ending oh christ what do we do now okay <laughs> well we've got to leave it open to the imagination of what's going to happen next and what's going on and they give yeah. you that coulson is getting all these offers Oh, come and join me come and work here come and tell stories at the academy come to hq you know come and help us out there and he's gone well i've actually done my bit so i'm going to see parts of the world that i want to yeah. You know, I've done my thing. He's got all the time he wants, really. If he ever wants to go back to S.H.I.E.L.D., he could. But his decision is, I'm actually going to go off and explore the world and see things that I want to experience, things that I want to. Well, Daisy gives him the suggestion of what he should be doing, and it was what he did for her. Mm. By giving her that purpose, by giving her something to believe in, something to look up to. And she says to him, a lot of people out there needing help. So you could imagine this version of Coulson wandering the world, just helping out lost souls and maybe pointing them in the direction of S.H.I.E.L.D., but maybe not, maybe helping them just find their purpose. You can imagine Coulson just inspiring superheroes across <laughs> the world. Minor emergencies Coulson could deal with, and if it was anything bigger, he would get the right people involved. You know that, so, yeah. Yeah, or he just goes to a city that has a superhero that doesn't know what they're doing. And he helps them. That would totally work for me. That's the implication of what he's going to get up to. And maybe that's just what he does. He finds that for himself. But I love the ending. And I'm glad they didn't follow the same beat they did for the last ending that we had. Because that was perfect for what it was at the time. But if they just repeated that, if they just tried with the emotional angle of loss and progression from that loss, then I wouldn't have been so engaged with it. I would have just felt a bit of repetition. So well done to them for essentially doing two series mm -hmm. finales in one show and making them different yet equally valid. That's not easy to do. No, they definitely made it work. Yeah, they did. So that was that. So I think take some time to deliver a bit of context on the show itself, because we've both been watching since it began, haven't we? Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So what's your relationship to the show been? Have you always liked it? Have you been up and down over the years? Or did you hate it like a lot of people did for a while? I've always been up and down with it. I've always seen some good points with it and some bad points. And I've talked before on the podcast about how some of the seasons, it was like they would have a beginning half that was a bit bleh, and then suddenly it would pick up. They did quite well laterally of having pretty solid seasons, but a lot of the time they would start with something that you're like, oh, I'm not interested in this, and it's really boring and, oh, <laughs> you know i'm not engaging with the characters at this point and, uh, and then suddenly in the latter half you'd be like oh now this is more interesting okay you had that first half so you could get to this but right okay that's fine i'll forgive you for that it was billed originally as to be a completionist to be a marvel completionist 
to tick every Marvel box. You must watch the show because you will not understand how other things are happening and there's going to be in-gags that you're just you're not going to get and you must watch this in the same way that you stay for the very, very end, 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 end credits thing. You need to watch this show to get connections in the films. And that was how it was first sort of put there, wasn't it? That was how it was kind of pitched and sold. And no, that isn't what the show was. Well, it was initially. It it tried initially. And then it was like, we can't rely on this as a thing because, well, first of all, it seemed that the movies weren't willing to share (laughs) for one part. (laughs) It's like, we want you to tie into the movies. Okay, well, tell us what's going to happen in the movies. No, that's a secret. You must (laughs) figure it out on your own. And they were like, okay, well, we can't wait for you so we need to do our own thing oh by the way about halfway through your first season we're (laughs) killing your concept yeah you will be agents (laughs) of no agency left yeah it's like you know that's it you'll be unemployed agents that's the kind of thing that was okay well you got to see it was started as that kind of thing and then it developed and i think once it developed its own stride and it, it set out on its own it actually became a much better show I think it was good that it had that sort of Marvel tag on it that managed to keep it going through maybe some weaker seasons where mm. some people maybe would have ditched it a bit sooner. No, saying that, it hasn't saved the likes of Agent Carter or some of the Netflix stuff from being binned, but some of that is more contractual wranglings rather than the show is not particularly performing well. It was also Agent Carter just didn't pull in the audience for whatever reason. I don't know why, because certainly season one, it was way more interesting than S.H.I.E.L.D. was at the time. It looked better, it was better written at the point, it was overall a better show and I just couldn't understand why are people not watching this? I think it's one of those shows that people will watch back on, be it like Disney Plus or something like that and suddenly it'll be like, oh why didn't I not watch this at the time? In the same way that people are discovering different Star Wars content and things at the moment that they maybe wouldn't have watched because it's sitting there on Disney Plus and it's like oh, if you watch this then you'd enjoy this. Or like Star Trek Enterprise is getting through a resurgence at the moment because yeah. you know it's popping up. People on, have the access popping to up on Netflix yeah. recommendations and things like that. I think likewise, Agents of Shield. I think a lot of people that maybe ditched it earlier on in its time or just lost track of where it was on or when it was on, will now maybe pick it up in a way that they didn't. But yeah, my relationship with the show massively mixed up until latterly where it's been pretty strong on its seasons and I've had my odd failings with it but how about you? I always found it watchable but I think certainly in those doldrum days of season one where the episodes just weren't up to much and where you find out they are just killing time until they can do Mm. the Winter Soldier tie-in that's what they were doing. We can't tell anything substantial because we're waiting for this thing to happen. So then you have things like, we're cleaning up after that fight in Thor, <laughs> or we'll just mention extremists or whatever else. And I think it just got more and more irritating and the plotting was feeling a bit pointless. It's just, yeah, this is broadly episodic television that isn't that interesting. But Coulson's in it and I still like Coulson. He's interesting. And I like Sky as she was at the time. And there was always something in there that was like, I've got to keep watching this because there's something in this that's just keeping me hooked just enough for me not to drop it. Then the Winter Soldier stuff happened. I was like, holy crap, how are they going to get out of this? There is no shield anymore. And then it became a show about the scrappy underdog organization trying to rebuild itself. And sometimes as the seasons went on, I kept thinking, I kind of miss those monolithic organisation days where they just had infinite resources and stuff. Because I think early on they were doing a reasonable job of playing up how Sinister Shield can be as an organisation, especially if you don't have people like Colson that have a bit of mm-hmm. an ethical framework 
underneath them because Colson was always the decent guy, but even he was capable of pretty heinous stuff because he recognises that things might need to be covered up for the greater good. And then you have Daisy or Sky at the time. It's weird because when she first changed names when I was writing reviews, <laughs> I had to do a control F at the end to make sure I cut out all the Skies and replace them with Daisies because it was hard for me to get used to that. But Sky was the opposite of that. All information should be free and shared. And he was making the argument for, no, there's times where it shouldn't be. And then they built up S.H.I.E.L.D. as being this, eh, maybe this isn't the best thing in the world to have this kind of organisation that have unlimited access to our data. This is crazy. This is insane. This is a problem. And... Ultimately, they double down on that by saying, oh, Hydro's in there all along, so they're misusing those resources. And it's like, well, should anyone have those resources? Whatever. But they forget about it later. And I think it got more interesting as it went on. And as they divorced themselves from the Marvel Cinematic Universe even more, I was liking it even more because it came more about what it was. You would still get a clumsy tie-in every time a film was about to come out or had just come out. A helicarrier in the basement, for example. <laughs> I had that down on my list of tie-ins. A helicarrier in the basement. Hang on, Coulson had that that whole time and he just never used it. Well, the thing is, it was problematic because it was this mystery that was built up as in a, this is why we can't trust Coulson because he's hiding something in the basement. And it turns out it's the helicarrier that you need to watch a film to understand the context of why it's there and what it's about to be used for. And then when the show comes back after the film's been out, Suddenly, everybody that had a problem with him now sees him as a hero because he had this thing in the basement that helped save the world. And it's like, this isn't resolved in the show. <laughs> you've had this arc that you've been building up for a while, and you're suggesting that Coulson might be a bit corrupted by whatever happened to him. And nope, it's because of this thing that happened in another film that you've maybe seen yet, maybe not. It depends if you had time. Is the resolution to this arc? And that's super clumsy. Things like giving information on a Hydra base to... Maria Hill, who cameos in the episode. That's fine by me. That works. But stuff like that is just awful. And then when Doctor Strange was coming out, you had Ghost Rider in the show and you had one of those magic books. That's fine. Again, it doesn't directly rely on that film. It's just at the same time that the MCU is playing with magic, so is Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., but they're doing something different with it. That's fine. But I always loved it. It was a scrappy show in a lot of ways. It seems like it was always on the verge of getting killed off. And it's like, why is this still on? I mean, it outlived Daredevil. It outlived Luke Cage. It outlived Jessica Jones. It outlived Iron Fist. I mean, well, there's no surprise that it outlived <laughs> Iron Fist, really. But, <laughs> but it outlived all these shows, all these Netflix shows that were lauded when they first came on. Everybody loved them, or everybody seemed to love them initially. And Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. just kept trundling along for some reason just on ABC, because I guess enough people were watching it that we can't cancel it yet, and then we'll decide what we're going to do by the end of season five. We'll give it a season six. Before season six even airs, let's give it a seventh and final season to lop it off. So obviously someone liked it. Someone wanted it to not end on a bum note. Someone wanted it to get its chance to finish it, and whoever it was deserves a thank you for Mm. that. But it became the show that was willing to try different weird comic book concepts. We're going to do time travel. We're going to do this predestination stuff. We're going to do a Matrix-style framework where we're not sure who's real. We're going to do this invasion of the body snatchers plot. We're going to do this weird apocalyptic future. We're going to do all these things. We're going to do weird what-ifs. It was a Max thing, I think, when they were in space, when it's discovered in the apocalyptic future in space. And he's like, oh, we're in space now. Well, I suppose that makes yeah, sense. Done, yeah, I suppose we've not done, done that yet. yet. And it was just like, perfect. Yeah, of course, even that self-referential type figure of, oh, we're doing this now? Okay. He even did that in the last episode where he's like, this is a lot to take in. <laughs> 
It's like, yeah, okay, but you haven't covered up the fact that, it, yes, it is a lot to take in. But thanks, Mac. I like to know that you're on my side here. So, yeah, I think said on a different podcast, but it became not afraid to try new things because, well, the reason we exist doesn't care about us anymore. So we might as well play around. And they introduced the Inhumans, mm-hmm. which then spawned, well, did it sp- I don't know if the TV show is a spin-off. It isn't really. Although other Inhumans on Earth are mentioned in the show, but only kind of obliquely. But they introduced the Inhumans, and it looked like for a while these were going to be the excuse for mutants in the Marvel Universe, as in, we can't have them, but we can have these guys, and they're basically the same, except they have to be activated instead of being born with their powers. So that was a big deal, or it seemed like a big deal, although it didn't factor into the MCU at all. No, it didn't really time in. They did the whole thing of it getting into the fish oil, didn't they, and then spreading around a bit, but... Yeah, that was so funny. But they didn't really cover, like you say, the tie into the MCU kind of worked one way. S.H.I.E.L.D. would pick a couple of bits out of, but it was very rare that it would feed back in a seismic way. You have to advertise our films, but we don't have to put Mac in any of our films. <laughs> so, yeah. And that's kind of annoying because they could have done a lot with the Inhumans in the films, I think. And they, I think they still could have. And especially when they do Kamala Khan and so on, yeah. eventually, which is already in development. Be interesting if they do the Inhuman route. Are they going to reference Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. at some point in there? I mean, the show is on Disney Plus at this point. Is there any reason we can't repurpose these characters? They're obviously in a different timeline now. But it seems like since one of the films coming out has the word multiverse in it, it seems like not a huge problem. It doesn't seem like a far stretch, and you would think that they'd be able to pull little bits in, even if it is a little bit fan service Yeah. You do get similar from the likes of Star Wars or whatever, where they will drop little things into the background of scenes and whatnot, and it does work that way. Yeah. Well, the thing is, Daisy out in space, that strongly suggests that she's part of an offshoot organisation of S.H.I.E.L.D. called S.W.O.R.D., which are S.H.I.E.L.D. in space basically. And that's a spin-off I would love to see, but it seems like the MCU want to do something with it, because it's implied that's where Nick Fury is at the moment. Yeah, I mean, they've got the thing of Nick Fury on the spaceship out and about, so... Yeah. Yeah, they could be going down that line, but then another good potential tie-in or way of doing it. Is this when the petition starts for Agents of S.W.O.R.D.? Yeah, well, that's the thing. But they're in a different universe, though. They definitely are, because even though they reference Thanos, the snap does not happen. It's never referenced. It doesn't happen. But that's because they wouldn't tell them. And then they chose not to deal with it in the sixth season because Endgame wasn't out yet. And they didn't know whether the snap would be undone seconds after it happened or whether it would persist for a while. Because they wouldn't even tell them that. If they had known that it was going to be a five-year gap between Endgame and the fix kind of thing, the unsnap, whatever we want to call it, you could have had a very strange, dark... Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. season based on trying to patch things together in between the snap, trying to deal with breakouts that have happened or people getting a hold of devices that were formerly locked up securely but now have half the guards that they used to. It's the perfect show to do it. It would have been a great way of handling that post-snap world in an episodic format. You've got the show right there that would have been capable of covering it and filling in this blank that you've got in the films that is kind of brushed over. Once you get to Spider-Man Far From Home, for example, they're almost brushing it off as, oh, well, it's all fixed, all done. 
you know, and it's like, oh my God, the world must have been carnage for five years. It was an absolute mess. So I think Shield would have been the perfect show to cover it, though I get from, okay, you've had all the secrecy and everything. So that kind of torpedoed any prep that they could have done to cover that kind of thing. By the time it came out, it would have been too late to show it. So if they had interacted better, I think it would have been the perfect way of doing it. And I think we've maybe been cheated out of that slightly by contractual wranglings. Yeah, but arguably what we got was better. And then you'd have this whole, oh, well, conveniently the whole team survived. Or would they? Because potentially you need your team broken in that same way where they're sitting there with half their force or a couple of people down trying to scrabble together and put it through. I think it would have been an interesting way of doing it. I don't think what we got instead was poor. Well, the whole main cast would have had to survive. They might have lost, like, Piper or someone, but the whole principal cast would have probably survived. But they could <laughs> they could have done this thing where we went out onto the beach in Tahiti and then Coulson dis- turned into dust. And oh, can you imagine five, that? Five years later to die, like two weeks later. Oh, no. <laughs> They're about to get the perfect ending, him and May, and then either May or Coulson just turn into dust. I mean, dust. it'd be more sadistic, oh. but it'd be funnier if it was Coulson, because then he could come back and still be dying. He could come back just to have a couple of days left of his life. <laughs> yeah. Of this beach in Tahiti. On his own. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess that's me then. Well, I don't know what's happened. <laughs> That'd be really sad. But I think what we got instead was better. And I think them making the decision to completely divorce themselves from the MCU in that respect, fine. Alternate timeline. It's been established now that there is a multiverse out there. And they even use the same time travel methodology in this final season, the quantum realm and all that. Yeah, they even have the kind of mirrored thing on the roof, the, yeah. the gizmo above fits. Isn't it? It's a shrinking effect as well. It's mm. the same effect. So it's the same thing. So it ties in in that respect. It's just at some point they splintered off. Or maybe they were always in a different timeline that was similar enough mm. until a point. I don't know what that point is. Presumably the snap is when things start to change. If they hadn't changed before that. Or maybe the Inhumans, as in this timeline has Inhumans, where the other one never did. Potentially that's the break point, isn't it? Yeah, we just don't know. So what are your favourite episodes and moments? Do you have a list of any highlights? I have my vague scribbles that I normally do with these sort of things, because you start looking back and you go, it's a lot of episodes of television, there's been yeah. so many sort of good scenes. 136. Bits. 136, there you go. The code what... Coulson's case at the end. Yeah. I've memorised every single one for this podcast, especially for research. The scene that I always talk about, and I think you probably know the one that I'm going to go to instantly just to get it out of the way, is the Spies Goodbye scene, Mm. which was one of the best goodbye to character moments that I've seen in telly. It was just done ridiculously well. As a concept for like a Spies Goodbye, great. The way it was implemented really, really worked with Bobby and Hunter sitting there and the drinks arriving. They're discussing how they're going to get away. No one's going to employ them for a while. They're going to have to go into hiding and disappear off. We might have a spin-off TV show. Oh, no, wait, we won't. <laughs> oh, no, that would have been good. <laughs> Remember, so good Marvel's got that. Most Wanted will almost happen, but then didn't. Oh, that would have been good. But see, the <laughs> thing is, is the drinks slowly arriving. It's like, oh, who sent it? So they notice yeah. Simmons sitting there, and then it slowly expands out to everyone scattered across the bar and holding yeah. their glasses with the little piano music playing in the background. It's like, oh, my God. <laughs> it's a great scene. It's a difficult moment to watch if you don't have a lump in your throat in that moment. Oh, it gets you right there. You're a passionless chronicom. <laughs> <laughs> That's what to do to test your chronicoms. Show them that scene. (laughs) (laughs) That would work. 
Definitely. But they need to have two and a half seasons of context before they can, yeah. Watch two and a half seasons, then they finish that episode, and then tell me whether you reacted or not. That's a great moment. Definitely a highlight for me, that one. And Bobby and Hunter were such great characters as well. You see Hunter again, but never Bobby, because she takes a job on a spaceship. <laughs> That's one of my other... Oh, I had that written down as an episode, the one where Hunter comes back and breaks Fitz out of prison. Yeah, poses as his lawyer. <laughs> poses as his lawyer and comes in. And that is such a slapstick, silly episode. But it's just a lot of fun. If you take it in context of the show, these guys should be captured and gone. <laughs> this just shouldn't be happening as a thing. But the whole, I've bought the best pilot to get us out. Yeah. Best pilot that money can buy. And then the plane disappears and crashes into the ground. It's like the best escape pilot that my money can buy. <laughs> the whole thing spins out of control with them doing this road trip to escape sort of thing. And I thought that was a really good sort of fun, silly episode, that one. Yeah, that was a good one. Any of the off-format ones were really good, really. I think the best one was the Simmons one, 4,000-something mm. hours whatever it was called, that was a great episode. Just with Elizabeth Henstridge spending most of the time acting on her own, and then she gets someone to interact with eventually, but it's just such a great episode, and you wouldn't expect it from the show at that point, because it had established a fairly decent formula. And let's face it, as a show, it's very much a, or at that point, it was very much a modern version of the A-Team. As in, Mm. by the end of the episode, we have to infiltrate some baseline. We need a plan, and we need to execute that plan flawlessly. It's the A-Team. That's what they are. They're the A-team in the Marvel Universe, and that was yeah, it was pretty good. And it seems like the spin-off was going to be Mr. and Mrs. Smith, but in the Marvel Universe, and Bobby and Hunter with their, shall we say, tempestuous marital relationship, where they hmm. were very confrontational and so on, would have been quite fun to see. But yeah, it's a shame that spin-off never got picked up, especially after they'd already filmed and written them out of the show. <laughs> We've set it up so we can't bring them back. So, uh, great. You're still fired, but you're getting no show. Great. Well done. So the off-format stuff was great. I liked the two episodes that Sif was in. Yes, I had that written down as one of my tie-ins. <laughs> yeah, her being in it, I thought it, that worked really, really well. She was a good interacting force with the S.H.I.E.L.D. team, I think. And I wish they'd made her appear more, found some way to make her just more recurring than that. Yeah, it seemed like someone that you would call for help kind of thing. It was one yeah. of those. It's like, yeah. I've already mentioned their last series finale, which was... Well, near perfect as far as I'm concerned. I scribbled down self-control, which was a season four episode. It's when Simmons and Daisy start realising that everyone's an LMD. The core cast have been swapped out. And that's a very good episode. It's just before they transition into the framework, which again is another one of my favourite arcs where you're seeing this alternate reality it allows them yeah. to play with something that as much as they've done a sort of multiverse different timeline version in this season up until that point they wouldn't have been allowed to play with that kind of oh let's just flat out have hydra they wouldn't yeah. have got away with it still being continuity and in inverted commas with the movies they wouldn't have been able to get away with that but doing <laughs> it in this we've put them all in a simulation where hydra is shield kind of thing brilliant that tied in but that episode in particular where they slowly realize that there's LMDs out there and then there's the turnaround where Fitz is what as well. Yeah. And that just done super well. The first framework episode was great as well, where Daisy was a known as Sky in the framework, mm. but she was a Hydra agent and she was working with Ward, but it turns out Ward was a double yeah, agent was a double working agent. against them. Yeah. <laughs> and the Winter Soldier tie-in stuff, I think that was really good. Especially I think at that point I'd lost faith in the show to be clever. So 
when I first saw it, because the way it worked in terms of the way they aired it, because what they did was they did this whole something's going on. And then in the US a week later, Winter Soldier was coming out in the US at that point. So in between those two episodes. So it's really weird. Some TV show is just spoiling this big twist in your film less than a week after it's out. So hmm. your American audience, if you've not seen the film, you are spoiled. <laughs> That's yeah. you, you're screwed. But in the UK, at that point, the Marvel movies were coming out quite far in advance, a good couple of weeks. So we'd seen Winter Soldier, so we knew the twist was coming, but S.H.I.E.L.D. hadn't caught up to it yet. So we knew that the Hydra thing had to factor in somehow. I remember after Winter Soldier thinking, what is this going to do to S.H.I.E.L.D.? It's killing the concept. <laughs> but we hadn't got to the point where they started to build to that yet, so it seemed like they were forgetting about it or weren't doing anything about it, and then they did. And then I remember at that point thinking, it's not clever enough to do anything with the characters. So I assumed all of our main characters are going to be loyal to S.H.I.E.L.D. So I never believed that Coulson could be a Hydra agent, even though the show was kind of trying to tell us that he was. But that was just misdirection. So when they revealed that Ward was Hydra, and he was the only one, I was genuinely surprised because I did not think they would go there. And then I kept expecting them to try to redeem him throughout the rest of the season, and they didn't. It got to the point where he was questioning Garrett, but he was only questioning Garrett. He wasn't questioning his belief system. So he mm -hmm. still was committed to the Hydra cause. He just wasn't committed to Garrett anymore because he was concerned. And then as that grew, he started to frame or build aspects of Hydra in his own image. And then he became Hive, which was a bit of a disservice to Ward in the sense that it kills him off in favour of this different character. But by that point, there wasn't much else you could do with him, I think. They'd get to the point where you're like, listen, you've got to kill him off already. He's just lingering on the sidelines yeah. and it's just cruelty to keep the character around at this point. But he was a great recurring antagonist for a while. And I think they used him as well as they could. And I think they killed him off before the point where one was sick of him. So that's the right time to kill someone off like that, I think, before you're sick of them, when you still want a bit more of them. Yeah, true. So that was a nice surprise for me. I think the first episode is great. I think as a pilot, it's a great mm. pilot. It's written by Joss Whedon. And it's really weird how you see how watered down the characters or some of the characters become after that point. Because in that one... Ward is impatient, he's sarcastic, he just can't be arsed being there. And then he gets watered down to the like, stoic agent guy after that because I guess the people writing him after Joss Whedon were less sophisticated in terms of the way they could frame a character. So Brett Dalton had less to work with. But in the first episode, he's really interesting. I can see why he would be agitated by this. And then he kind of homogenises later on. And I remember initially finding Fitz and Simmons to be painfully irritating. I hated them. I hated them for at least a season. <laughs> Funnily enough, once Fitz got brain damage, I started liking him. Remember the brain damage that he gets rid of within a season? I don't know whether you actually could. I don't know anything about brain damage, so I'm not going to say, oh no, that wouldn't happen. But it just seemed a bit weird, but I wasn't against it. But I liked him a lot more after that, and I liked Simmons a lot more after that. Once they grew up a bit, I guess their arc was... They have to realise that it's not just scientific problems, it's real life they're dealing with, and they have to get their mindset out of the classroom and into the real world. But the humour was just killing me in the first season. Hated them. Every time they were on screen, I was like, shut up, someone kill them. And then Ward tried. They were sort of framed as, it's time to go to the comic relief scientists. It's like, oh, okay, okay, yeah, maybe not. Yeah. Let's tone it down, folks. So that's a testament to the power of the show. You can take two characters that I could not stand... 
in the first season and turned them into some of my favourites. They did well. They had to start somewhere with them and I'm glad that they managed to sort of redeem the characters and really, really work on them. And I suppose that is a growth in them as well, is the fact that they were sort of going out into the field for the first time, bit jumpy, bit nervous, used to being in a yeah. lab and sort of bouncing off each other rather than being out in the field and having to be more disciplined and then they slowly get that way. So it, it works to a level, but like you say, they could be a bit irritating at first. I mean, the dynamic early on was that Colton and May, they're the parents. Ward is the babysitter and everyone else are the children. And unfortunately, they play up that angle too much and they get annoying. And even Sky, as she was known at the time, would get dragged into it and become annoying at times as well. But I think the pilot is a very strong pilot. I think it's a really good episode of television. The 100th episode was great. Any of the Ghost Rider stuff, I love the Ghost Rider stuff. That was a highlight for me. Mostly because I didn't expect them to do it. And then you got a version of Ghost Rider in the show and I thought he was brilliantly done. The Robbie Reyes version, who may or may not be getting a spin-off at some point. Probably not at this point, you'd think, unless it's going to pop up on Disney Plus at some point. Where Disney go, oh, we're short of things. Uh, Oh, we've got this discarded pilot script for a Ghost Rider show. (laughs) Yeah. So that's general highlights. I mean, there's a lot of great episodes in there. I think a lot of the Inhuman stuff is really well done. The episode where Sky, as she is at the time, gets her powers is great. Oh, that episode is cracking, and that's obviously Trip as well in that one. And you go, oh, no. Yeah, poor Trip dies, yeah. When Admiral Adama turns up and all but name <laughs> the real shield, as it was at the time, it's like, we're working for the real shield. And I'm like, hang on. A season ago, there was no shield. And now there's two. There's <laughs> two shields. <laughs> shield is still surviving, yeah. But yeah, it was Edward James almost. He's in charge of an aircraft carrier. It's Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the casting is no accident. Yeah, we it? need someone that can play an admiral on the last ship in the fleet. <laughs> oh, there we go. Got him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Let me just yeah. pitch this to you. I've got an actor who's been proven to play this before. So those are really my highlights. There's a lot of them. I was re-watching a few episodes over the weekend before this recording, and I was like, my God, there's so many belters here. I really want to go back and watch the whole thing. And you know what? I think I just might. <laughs> I think it would definitely be worth it, knowing where it ends up, worth watching back. Now that it's a completed work, yeah. But yeah, and I did similar. I sort of went back and watched a couple of things in the run-up to doing this, because I know that we we're obviously going to be talking about the season as a whole and watching odd little clips and things. I forget how many sort of little good moments that it's had. So there'll be tons that we haven't mentioned. So if you're screaming at your headphones going, why are you not mentioning this moment? <laughs> then we're sorry. There's no way that we could cover it all. When they started bringing superpowers in and made superpowers a big part of the framework yeah. <laughs> of the show, they could do more interesting things. So you would have episodes where Daisy's using her powers, where Yo-Yo's using her powers, Lincoln. I didn't like Lincoln, but he had cool powers, things like that. So when you had them using powers as part of it, it's more like we're stopping being adjacent to this universe. We are now going to be a big part of it in the sense that, no, we're not just going to talk about superpowers that might exist. We have them now and we're going to use them. It's part of the way the show managed to regenerate itself all the time, where it would throw in new ideas, new concepts, and putting superpowers in there was just one of those steps. It's like, how can we differentiate ourselves? There's lots of procedurals with renegade teams trying to rebuild organisations and taking down bad guys. How do we make ourselves stand out from those shows? Apart from the fact that we've got a shield badge on that's part of the Marvel thing, how do we differentiate it? And putting powers in there 
great works. It's great, yeah. It does have the notable advantage of being one of those shows that just moves me emotionally quite a lot. It's managed to do so. It's weird because a lot of people think back to Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. who dropped it in its first season like, that's a piece of crap or whatever. But by the time I'm getting up to the point where Coulson's delivering a moving speech about how they're all heroes before he goes off to his death, or Daisy getting everybody to agree to the fact that Mac is the best choice for director, and then Mac doing that where they hack everyone's phone and everyone's screens in the middle of a crisis situation. And it's Mac's voice saying, this is S.H.I.E.L.D. We're here to protect you. Get in the plane. We're going to clear all the buildings. Don't worry. We'll handle the threat. It's stuff like that. You've really built something here. And you've really got me invested in a lot of different things. And there's a lot of shows that can't do that for me. Definitely. Especially after this time, if you stick with a show for long enough, you do care about the characters. Definitely. And they've done a good job with the cast. Yeah. So we've kind of touched on it. What were your favourite and maybe least favourite MCU tie-ins back when you used to do them? <laughs> least favourites. Um, least favourites, I would probably... We've already really mentioned them. The four tidy up one made me laugh. That made me laugh a lot because it was a big thing of, oh, it's going to be tied in. There's going to be something in here about... A big marketing push A big marketing push. And... This is, you know, you've seen four, now see what happens next. And it was what happens next is they have a mop and a broom and they're tidying up Greenwich. Yeah, and why are they doing yeah. it? Why these guys? Why this elite team in particular? Coulson yeah. has asked for this duty because he knows four himself. I don't know. It seemed like an odd... <laughs> but that one... I wasn't particularly a fan of the the spear helicarrier was kind of a funny, weird sort of tie-in sort of thing. Tie-ins that I liked, obviously the Hydra one. We've mentioned the Winter Soldier tie-in. They couldn't avoid that one. <laughs> they did it very well. Yeah. And the little Agent Carter spin thing that they did, where they sort of had that jumping about. I'm going to count that as a sort of Marvel tie-in thing. What else did I have? I had Lady Sif scribbled down here. You mean when they had Peggy turn up in a mm. couple of episodes? Because they had Whitehall. It was going between the past and the present and fitting it in that way. And I thought that was pretty fun. As much as it was probably more used as a pilot for Agent Carter or a promo trail for Agent Carter than it was as a S.H.I.E.L.D. episode. Yeah, they were already making it at that point, I think. So It was yeah. sort of a breakout from that, but I still enjoyed it. Inhumans, I'm going to count that as a tie-in, kind of, but, you know. Was that? That's that's what I had. That's kind <laughs> of that's what I had scribbled on my list. <laughs> that's cool. The Hydra stuff, amazing. Yeah, I think they did really well with that in season one. Some of the littler ones, like I already mentioned, the handing over that information to Maria mm. Hill in that one episode, and I thought that was going to be it for the Age of Ultron tie-in. So I'll call Maria. Stark is apparently nowhere near at the moment, and then we'll give them this information on this Hydra base so they can find the Scepter. And it's really funny that in Age of Ultron, they're fighting Hydra people that are using jetpacks and super advanced tanks. And then in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., they're just machine guns. <laughs> so we're dealing with the low-rent Hydra bases. Yeah, the slightly cheaper Hydra bases where they haven't kitted them out with the yeah. full kit. <laughs> yeah, you would get mentions of the Tesseract every now and again. When they did that whole Hydra Academy thing in Season 5? Yeah, 5, where it was flashbacks to Hale back in the um, Hail Hydra, which is funny, as they mentioned, I'm guessing, a couple of times, where they mentioned the Tesseract and Whitehall was there, and they mentioned those things. So those little tie-ins, it's like just a reminder that it was part of that universe without being part of that universe. So it's like, we don't have to interact all the time. In fact, it makes it appear bigger if we don't, but we'll still mention stuff that's common. So they can still mention Stark and stuff. Even in the final season, they mentioned that Coulson inspired the Avengers, Mm. and he kind of downplays it a bit. And obviously they mentioned Thanos, the attack on New York, as seen in Infinity War, is mentioned, and that's part of Graviton's motivation. 
he thinks it's his destiny to fight Thanos, even though he doesn't. Your mention of the Kree, they were good tie-ins as well. I don't think they ever crossed over, but the Kree were mentioned quite heavily in S.H.I.E.L.D., especially later on. And even then, they were responsible for Coulson being resurrected because of the blood and all that stuff. So that was a tie-in. Yeah, that's about all I can think of in that respect. Like I said, they had magic happening at the same time Doctor Strange was roughly coming out and all that stuff. But that's not an explicit tie-in. Like you say, it did it best when it did it sort of subtly and did little nods to say it was in the same thing. And when Simmons vanished into the monolith, Coulson says to Fitz, the attack on PIM technology or the incident at PIM technologies made you speculate that she might have been shrunk. Stuff like that. And that's what I mean. It gives the universe scope, as in these things are happening and they might feed in indirectly to what we're doing. So that's about it. I can't think of anything major that ties in in any other respect, really. Nick Fury being there a couple of times. Those that were was good. good. Fury and his many secret bases. His infinite number of secret bases. But his actual appearances were good. His first one being in the second episode, where it's like, yeah, Samuel Jackson has five minutes. We'll get him to film this scene. And so he's yelling at Coulson because he's wrecked the plane. It's only his second <laughs> mission. We had a bar, a really good one. <laughs> and... You better not be installing a fish tank. And then he wanders off and Coulson's like, kill the fish tank. (laughs) (laughs) And then he appears in the season one finale as well. And that was good. Some of the tie-ins were hilarious and distracting. Later on, they became less distracting, I think. It's when they were just randomly mentioning the odd thing that was in the universe rather than connecting to it. So as a final thing, how do you feel now that the show is over? We've been watching it for seven years. I started watching it on my 26th birthday. On that day, that's when I first watched it. And I've watched it on time every week ever since. Every time it's your birthday, you catch up with Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. (laughs) How do I feel? I'm glad that it got to wrap it up itself. I always get disappointed in shows that get sort of cut off on a mid-season point or don't get to do a proper wrap-up. S.H.I.E.L.D. has been fortunate in the fact that it's managed to do it about three times. Like we said, the one in the end of season five was a great ending. I think they've done another really good closer to it. I think they've left it at the right time. What else could they do? How else could they carry it forward? When you look at all that they've done, like we've said, they did the framework, they did time travel, they did bleak futures, they've done space, they've done alternate worlds, they've done life model decoys, they did the whole thing. What left is there that they could do? (laughs) I mean, I would love to hear their pitch for them attempting or the things that they were going to get around to do that couldn't, but I imagine that they've run it as much as they can. And if you were to do more and more and more and more, you end up with a rule of diminishing returns. And I think, why not go out while it's at a high and it's done really well and everyone's willing to do it? And I look forward to seeing what the cast and the creatives behind the programme end up doing next. Yeah, I would agree. I think it gets to a point where a show is just diminishing returns. This is being kept on the air for whatever reason, because it's popular enough and it's safe enough and we can keep it going. But... I guess Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. after a point was teetering on the edge that they were always just kind of going for broke and certainly that's what became interesting about it for me. And I think if they'd let it run any longer, imagine if they'd just planned out this final last hurrah time travel story in its final season, jumping around different timelines, doing different things, and then it's, you're getting an eighth season! <laughs> and it's like, what the... What are we going to do <laughs> with an eighth season? <laughs> yeah. We're going to, all right, we're going to go forward in time two years and then there's something that brings the team back together. S.H.I.E.L.D. is destroyed again from the inside out and it's only these eight people or seven people or whatever it is that can reunite to rebuild it again. That's ultimately what it would be, I suppose. But I think the fact that it ends where I still want to see more of it is a good thing. Yeah. 
it's gone out at the right point. I'm going to miss it, of course. It's one less thing to look forward to in my existence. <laughs> but at least I had it, and I've got seven seasons to revisit ad nauseum for the next however long I live. And then I'll get my life model decoy when that's built to continue watching it. It gets all its memories back of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. The first thing it does is sit down and watch watch Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. It's not me, but it's a thing. What to do is only give it its memory of the pilot (laughs) and then make it watch the rest (laughs) for the first time. (laughs) My life model decoy, my podcasting decoy as well. That'd be amazing. Maybe not. Maybe that's something I don't want. (laughs) The show taught us weird things about artificial intelligence. It's it's a bad thing unless you make one yourself and it's Coulson. Or Davis. We've got Davis as well. We've got Davis back. Come on. We've got Davis. Yeah. Good old Davis. Poor Davis. (laughs) So that's us. Do you have any final thoughts? No, that was my final thought. Robot agent Davis. (laughs) There we go. That's my final thought is cool. Love the show. Going to miss it. So glad we had this long conversation about it and I hope the listeners enjoyed listening to this final conversation about it so that's us that's our conversation about the final episodes final season the whole series of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. we covered a lot of ground here Chris thank you for being here thank you I also want to thank YouTuber Neil Stenson for the supplied Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. theme he makes it sound suitably epic and it's playing us out right now if you want to catch up with us on the socials, you can go on Facebook or Twitter under Neil Before Blog. The website is neilbeforeblog.co.uk. You can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, any major podcasting app. I think it still gets dumped on YouTube, but don't worry about that. Just listen to it on the go on your mobile device or whatever device you want. You can listen to it on your computer. I don't know. And yeah, just hit us up and talk about the show. We're happy to continue chewing the fat about Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. for as long as people want to continue chewing the fat about it. I don't know if this will be the final time we ever talk about it. Maybe it'll be like The Flash. It'll replace The Flash and we'll give it a mention (laughs) on every podcast that we do. Honourable mention. I don't know. I hope you'll join us on the next Meal Before Pod.